Hello there, everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Bodywood. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... Three Storms. Right. I'm, I'm going to start this off. Three Storms. Three, The yeah. only time you should have three storms is in big trouble in little China. I got woken up at 5 a.m. by wheelie bins breaking the speed record down our street. I'm sick of the storm. I'm sick of watching planes not landing because I'm right by the airport. Oh, by the way, I'm Andrew Roger Carson. I'm the co-host of this show, and <laughs> I just wanted to get all of that shit out before we carry on this week. Funnily enough, speaking of storms, I was actually at the Manchester Storm ice hockey last night with the family, and it was the first time I'd been to watch ice hockey in about 17 years. Since I read about two thousand four, two thousand five, something like that. So, uh, so yeah, I had a great time last night. But driving back, hailstone on the motorway. You know, that was an incredibly impressive segue. You really broke your back on that one. And speaking of broken backs, hey, let's hey. talk about uh, what's in the box from last week, which was Brokeback Mountain from yeah. two thousand five. Yeah, I yes. set them up. You knock them down. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Brokeback Mountain. Um. This is one of those movies which has been parodied from here to eternity. It th- there's pretty much no comedy show from like SNL to Family Guy that hasn't made some kind of joke or riff on this. But what we have here is we have an absolutely beautiful, yes, gorgeously shot, incredibly well acted. Um, just it, it, it. I thought this was a really incredible love story that just happened to be about two guys. Yeah. It, it's a slow movie. I'm, I'm not going to take that away from it. It is an incredibly slow movie, but the, the pace of it is earned. Um, yes. I think it gets a little bit too kind of bogged down with the time jumping, and it's never really clear as to how many years or how long has passed between the two characters meeting each other. Um, but you do kind of get the, the idea that this whole thing takes place over around about the span of about 20 odd years uh from about 1963 i think it starts off in everything just takes hold of you and this wonderful drama this moving drama between these two fantastic actors jake gillenhall and the very sadly late heath ledger just takes hold and it is just it's, it's a really wonderful movie and i'm very glad that i got a chance to watch this one you know it, it's so strange that still to this day there's so many people who are closed mind and not watching this movie. Oh, I wasn't watching uh, it because it was just a cowboy movie. But <laughs> that was the reason why I didn't watch it up until now. It's, it's not even really a cowboy movie. It isn't. <laughs> it's not a Western. It's, it's not... Uh, what it is, I'm, I'm going to go on a line here. It's one of the greatest love stories ever told. Mm. Yeah, it is. Uh, on film. I, I would rank it in the top ten. and uh, Not for inclusion, because, you know, it is because of the story. And... Ankley, uh, when Ankley was making great movies, I mean, he was making like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Lust Caution. Uh, oh, oh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I knew that one would come up. You know, but when he, and he also made Gemini Man as well, which was, you know, that was pretty bad as well. For for every bad movie he makes, he makes great movies like Life mm-hmm. of Pi. Life of yeah. Pi is an amazing movie. Oh God, yeah, Ankley. Just makes beautiful movies. He does. really does. And it, no matter what genre he'll make it, apart from obviously superhero and Will Smith movies, 
where you look but, at the, um, the scenery in this movie and he knew oh. how to pick his shots. There's, there's one scene towards the end and it's the last time that the two of them meet. Spoilers. Um, and they're, they're camping out by this river and there's a mountain in the distance and all I could think of was, I would kill to camp out there. Just spend a few nights under that kind of sky in that kind of... Oh, it just looks so incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's just lush to look at. This was a movie that stands out for Heath Ledger, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he is the standout performance of the entire movie. Jake Gyllenhaal is amazing. Michelle Williams is amazing. It's one of the most yeah. perfectly cast movies. Even the guy who got Randy Quaid before, he went absolutely nuts. Yeah, it was just and, on the cusp of it, wasn't it? Yeah, apparently he tried to sue them because yeah. he heard it was going to be a, a real indie movie that probably not a lot of people will see and he ended up making loads of money and he felt a bit ripped off and then he mysteriously just dropped his case. Yeah. But that's 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 Randy. Um, but Heath Ledger um, did this thanks to Naomi Watts because Naomi Watts introduced this script to him, apparently took it to him and said, you should read this. And he agreed straight away. You know, he wanted to do it. And boy, I mean, him and Jake, they they fully go for it. You yeah. Know, they, they don't hold back. <laughs> Apparently, there's a point where during one of the kisses and scenes, Jake Gyllenhaal's nose nearly broke, apparently. I can believe that. <laughs> yeah. I can believe that. And the, the one thing that did catch me off guard is I was expecting the first time they actually have sex. And it, it's never ex- it's never kind of like, proper in your face and there's no like full frontal male nudity well except for when they're jumping off a cliff into icy water <laughs> yes. and there's no way that i would do that not if i wanted my <laughs> testicles to stay on the outside of my body um but the the first time that they want to know how i got these scars <laughs> <laughs> i was digging them out with a spoon um the the first time that they actually have sex is it's a very it's a very rough affair and it's a very very brief thing and I was honestly expecting there to be more kind of build up to that, you know, more kind of like uh, like furtive glances almost. And it's it's not what the characters are seeing; it's more what the camera's seeing yes. that kind of leads up to that moment. But even even so, it still does take you. It's a, it's a very rough and aggressive first sex scene. But then after that, you things start to get more tender between the two of them. I remember hearing an interview with Christopher Nolan and uh, he was asked, obviously, because Heath Ledger was going for the Joker and there was loads of uh, backlash against that. How was a pretty, he's a pretty boy. He can't do this. He does rom-coms. And uh, Christopher Nolan came to his defense and said, no, Heath Ledger is fearless. Yeah. And I think that kind of comes across in this because it's, it is still quite a heavy thing for two straight actors to do yeah especially hippie and australian as well australians are not really known for uh dropping the kind of rugged macho image Mm. when you're an actor uh so i mean it was uh, it's a movie at first there was a lot of um things about it. i've been doing my research today as always i mean for one daniel day lewis has gone on record and said this is his favorite movie of all time really yeah and that's high praise uh, uh, he praised Ledger especially. He's just saying uh, the the scene with the um, you know finding the shirt, yeah, which is probably one of the most powerful scenes I think I've ever seen in a love story. 
right? Yeah. And it really is just this amazingly shot and acted scene that it completes the whole movie for me. Yeah. Uh, but he said um, that Heath Ledger, you know, it was the bravest role he's ever seen an actor do. And it, it really is. This is the kind of, everyone remembers Heath as the Joker, but Heath as Ennis mm. in this movie is the true crowning achievement of his career. And, and the things I remember about Brookback Mountain when it came out, because obviously I remember at the uh, Academy Awards, you know, there's there's so many jokes about it going on that Heath Ledger apparently just would not get into or entertain. Yeah, because it, it, it did become like a point of humour. I mean, there's the... The, the funnily enough, Anna Faris was in this movie as well, but there was a scary movie four, and there's the oh yes, the yes, scene with the... Kevin Hart and uh, the other fellow. I can't remember his name. Um, Anthony Anderson. Yeah. That's the one, and they do like the whole kind of bit in the tent to uh, "Hello" by Lionel Richie, and it's hilarious. Oh, but it, yeah, low hanging fruit. Yeah, it is, and when you actually see the movie in its entirety, all those jokes. Well, still funny. You do think no, this deserves a lot more respect than what it actually well, got. Well, it definitely deserved a lot more respect at the Oscars because mm. I remember the the extremely audible gasp when uh, Jack Nicholson announced that Crash had won that year, mm. and every single person there was like, "Huh?" What? And the amazing thing is, a couple of years afterwards, they actually did a poll on uh, what should have won. Uh, best movie and Brokeback Mountain actually did receive more votes than Crash mm. so it is one of those very controversial things you know the whole Moonlight and La La Land style yeah. thing but uh, there was the original one was Crash and Brokeback Mountain and Crash is a great movie I, 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 it is a good it is a really good movie I saw that but, a few years ago but uh, yeah I think out of the two of them this should have definitely won yeah definitely the movie cost so little to make it only cost 14 million to make it actually recouped its cost on its opening weekend. There you go. So that was one. Universal did a very strange thing where they actually released this movie on DVD whilst it was still in cinemas. So this was the first film to be released on uh, DVD and download available on the same day also. Hmm. Little bit of trivia for you there. But when you look into the cost that it recouped on its first weekend, the first weekend it only played in five theatres. This movie set the record for the highest per screen gross that is not an animated movie. I wonder why they only did five cinemas. Maybe they thought it was, you know, a lot of gay cinema movies more that are made don't get a wider release. No. Right? Some of them just play in the art house theatres and things like that. To, to prove the influence of this movie, it is the most recent film in the film registry. National the Archive? National, yeah. Oh, right. So this is the most recent film at okay. this moment in time that is uh, registered within the film registry. Uh, it's also the first ever film to win Best Director at the Oscars, the BAFTAs, the Directors Guild, the Critics' Choice and the Golden Globes. Wow, that's a hell of a sweep. Also, Ang Lee was the first Asian to win Best Director as well hmm. at the Oscars. It is also the... Biggest all-time bootlegged movie in China <laughs> that didn't release it. And I know one thing. I am going to bring one thing to the table. Go ahead. Um, you always tell me not to go on IMDb, but I was just checking. 
they, there's a piece of music that keeps getting repeated, particularly at the beginning. Yeah. And it reminded me of uh, a piece of music from a band called Balmoria. And so I was looking through the, the, the soundtrack on it. But when I loaded up the page on IMDb, there's not only a made-for-TV remake that came yes. out afterwards, there's also a sequel. Really? <laughs> someone, I think it's just like someone has just made like a short film or something and called it Brokeback Mountain 2. And I had a look <laughs> on there and there's only oh, one God. cast member. Oh, my God. Well, I, I guess it's... Uh... Is it just him? I don't know. Must be. Just him maybe realising his hand is gay? I don't know. Yeah, he's, he's just put some <laughs> lipstick on his hand. <laughs> That's just him. Him and sheep. We know where it's going. Um, uh, and also the the last kind of thing here is uh, Focus Features, who made the movie. It is their biggest grossing movie of all time. Mm. Standouts for it, I will say it's brilliantly directed yeah. uh, by Ang Lee. It's beautiful to look at. The cinematography by... Uh, Rodrigo Pretro, uh, and uh, the music is beautiful as well by Gustavo Santa. I can't even say his name, Gustavo. <laughs> uh, but yes, as I said, it's perfectly cast, and it, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. And yeah. uh, I think everyone should at least watch it once in their life and just realize what true cinema really is. Yeah, yeah. Get over your prejudices. It's not a cowboy movie. Exactly. Yeah. So, you recommend Brokeback Mountain? I do. I do. Good. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. That's two weeks on the trot now. Oh, we're doing well. We're doing well. Well, speaking of which, uh, we've got two anniversaries to get through. We watch them again all of the time. Oh, we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. Only two this week. Only two this week. Oh. Uh, you know, I, I like to mix it up a bit. And to be honest, there's some films I'll talk about and some films I won't. But only if I can find out some kind of interesting stuff about them to speak of. Such as, can you believe, Steve? Mm. 30 years ago this week, the Steve Martin comedy Father of the Bride was released. God, is that that long? 30 years. Wow. And Richard Mirish is actually working on Father of the Bride Part 3 at this moment. <laughs> Go, Rich! Go! <laughs> Gotta be honest, it's not one of my favourite Steve Martin movies, but um, it, it is It is uh, quite, a, quite a nice little easy comedy. Yeah, if you've not watched the Spencer Tracy original, yeah. uh, which I do prefer because I'm an originalist. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I saw this when it came out and, you know, it, it plays to its strengths, which is Steve Martin. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a Steve Martin movie. Everyone else is just there to, yeah. to wrap it up. Uh, it was directed by Charles Shire. Uh, he was a writer, director, and a producer. You may know him from the Jude Law version of Alfie. What's it all about? He was also a producer on Private Benjamin, which was the Goldie Horn movie, which has also been mentioned on this show once before. Yeah. And uh, the producer and, I think, writer on The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan. And Lindsay Lohan. Mm. So he did a lot of these you know, family-friendly movies. And yeah. Just just nice, sugar-coated movies, usually with Nancy Myers. I mean, I suppose it's a more, kind of, like you say, sugar-coated take on family life than uh, Parenthood was. Yeah. yeah. You know. 
but it, I, I kind of miss the the older Steve Martin though, like the wild and crazy guy, the man with two brains, and dead men don't wear plaid and sure. all that kind of stuff. Like that, the coffee, the pouring out the coffee in uh, dead men don't wear plaid. Love the timing <laughs> on that. Yeah, it's such a great joke. Well, I mean, this this was the movie. Um, obviously, he's joined in it by Martin Short, mm-hmm. uh, who's worked with considerably, including the Three Amigos back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and I can't remember, he plays the kind of wedding planner style character, uh, which is classic Martin Short. Uh, you also have Diane Keaton in there, who is probably working her 11th movie with Nancy Myers since Baby Boom. <laughs> yeah, All the way to Something's Gotta Give, so it didn't even end here. And then the weird thing is about Father of the Bride and Father of the Bride Part 2 that came, I think, about four years later. Yeah. Eugene Levy is in both as two different characters. Is he? Yeah, I'm not sure if that's just lazy. Oh, because I've not seen the sequel. It's... I can barely remember the first one, but I've not seen the sequel. It's nothing to write home about, really. You know, it's it's just about having babies, really. It's a, it's a family baby type thing. I guess in the next one, they're going to be great-grandparents or something. I don't know. But uh, apart from having Father the Bride Part 3... There's remakes aplenty about Father the Bride at the moment because Disney is doing a remake for Disney Plus mm-hmm. uh, that we won't watch. We'll watch it about as much as that remake of Adventures in Babysitting that everyone's forgotten was made until I just mentioned it. Yeah, and not to uh, not to be outdone, but Warner Brothers are doing a version of it with a Hispanic family. Really? Because originality is rife at the. Uh, the House of Bugs Bunny. Oh, God, I can't remember what bride is in Spanish. Uh, well, it, it doesn't matter. We won't watch it anyway. Um, Father the Bride, uh, it's got that classic Alan Silvestri score, which you've heard on countless trailers mm-hmm. ever since. Uh, you've got a young Kieran Culkin in there, who, who's pretty good in it. Uh, you had the debut of Kimberly Williams-Paisley. She's now gone on to be a pretty good director, actually. I've got to admit, she's she's directing some good stuff. And, you know, it's a Steve Martin movie. Of course you're going to like it if you like Steve Martin. You know, it delivers the laughs. It's not one of his best. Uh, and I've actually been to the house, which was the where uh, Steve Martin lived in that movie. It, amazingly enough, it was right around the corner from a hotel I was staying in in Pasadena. And I was like, how did I not know this was here? I think you'd probably be hard-pressed to find anywhere in California which hasn't been filmed in at some point in time. Definitely not the hotel I've been staying in. <laughs> Except oh. on either Cheetahs or Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, it's some, it's somebody <laughs> somewhere will have pointed a camera at that motel and you'd just be like, yeah, that's it. Yes. <laughs> that's what I told the police. Yes. Um, so, yes, Father of the Bride is 30 years old this week. Okay. And I purposely left this one as the second one, Steve. Go on, then. Because you're going to love this. It's not The Last Jedi, is it? Please don't be The Last Jedi. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. Can you believe, Steve, Go 25 on. years ago this week, mm-hmm. The Phantom was released. <laughs> Billy Bloody Zane. Billy Bloody Zane is uh, The Phantom. Wasn't this Catherine Zeta-Jones' first film? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, she was dipping her toes into the Hollywood machine around this time. I think this might have been her debut in Hollywood, I think. Yeah. I think this was her graduation from, was it last of the summer? No, it was Darling, was... Blood, da- Darling Bloods. <laughs> Darling Bloods of me. 
<laughs> darling Bloods and Crips. Um, yeah, the uh, the Darling Buds of May. There we go. I'd pay to see that. <laughs> darling Bloods and Crips. That's what we need. Downton Abbey, two rival gangs. It worked for Romeo and Juliet. This is what we've got to do. I've got a script idea. I'm writing this now. Okay, I want creator credit. <laughs> Darling Bloods and Crips. Brilliant. Oh, anyway, go back, back to the Phantom, okay. shall I say, uh, which was directed by uh, Simon Winster, who you may know as the director of Free Willy. Hi, Mark. Uh, also the director of Lightning Jack, which I know you like and I can't stand. <laughs> I, I, I do like that movie. It's an inoffensive movie for me. And then strangely, he was also director of Prisoner Cell Block H. And that's probably the only time you're ever going to get a Hollywood connection <laughs> with Prisoner Cell Block H. Oh, God. I look at Simon Woods, it's like, didn't you direct Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man? How did you manage to go from Prisoner Cell Block H to a movie with Don Johnson and Mickey Rourke hating each other on screen and off? Um, God, no. But yes, Billy Zane as the Phantom. <laughs> ghost who walks. Yeah. The ghost who walks. And uh, it's great because you can tell he shot all of the stuff of him in costume as the Phantom afterwards because he shaved his head. <laughs> so he'd fit in the costume. So all the stuff where he's in, I can't remember, what was the name of the Phantom character? Was it Kit? Oh, God. Kit it, or something. I, I, only, I have only seen it the once, and that was uh, so long ago. Uh, you know, I, I've got a guilty pleasure of this movie. I will watch it any time it is on. Uh, and apparently Billy Zane was a huge fan of the Phantom which is surprising how much he undersold it when he was acting as him. But um, <laughs> my favourite ever story of Billy Zane as the Phantom, apparently like in between shooting days, he would actually go into uh, the city and buy sushi in full costume. <sighs> which is, <sighs> yeah. Now, you see, when you've got someone like Viggo Mortensen going to the dentist in full Aragorn costume... <laughs> That's that's impressive because you kind of look at him and go, oh shit, he's a bit dangerous. But when Billy Zane does it, dressed up like a giant purple, it's not got the same impact. No, no well, it didn't help the popularity. This was supposed to be um, kind of the first of an intended trilogy, but obviously this bombed. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of cancelled the plans, as it does with so many others. Um, <laughs> the most shocking thing that I learned about this was uh, they were originally going to make a Phantom movie in the 1970s. And do you know who was going to be the Phantom in this movie that thankfully never got off the ground? Oh, God. Take it's... a guess. You, you, it's either going to be someone who is like really, really perfect for the role, but old, or it's going to be something like, I don't know, John Belushi or something. No. Adam West. Oh, that would have been brilliant! <laughs> I call on the ghost of ten tigers. <laughs> yes. Oh, I can't do it, Adam West. No. no. Uh, Simon Winston wasn't even the original director for it. Apparently, uh, Joe Dante was the original director who was attached to it, who then dropped out due to commitments. Uh, not the commitments, but obviously filming commitments. I don't know what he was filming around this time, but uh, to jump off the Phantom must have been... <laughs> uh, Considering who the person behind Joe Dante was going to be, I think we could count it quite lucky because apparently Joel Schumacher was then approached. I'm saying nothing about Joel Schumacher. 
Um, it's all right because he got to do Batman and Robin around the same time Yeah, yeah. all I do know is that Batman and Robin was up until The Last Jedi was the single worst big budget Hollywood film that I'd ever seen but to Joel Schumacher's credit not only did he take all the shit that came from it he also spent most of the time on the DVD commentary apologising for the film so yeah (laughs) totally diffused the entire situation uh, so what you got here? You've got uh, a supporting cast that is made up of Christy Swanson. Uh, wouldn't it have been great to have her this week? Yeah, uh, you know. But hopefully we will soon enough, and we can ask her oh, all about this. You have, uh, as we mentioned, Catherine Zeta Jones. You had uh, James Ramar doing his dependable uh, bad guy scumbag mm-hmm. that he became known for pretty much around this time. Anytime he shows up in a big budget movie, you know he's not playing a good guy. Yeah, and then. On the villain end, you have Treat Williams as their moustached villain. <laughs> <laughs> Who's, uh, I, I don't even know what his plot was. That, that's how you know when it's a bad Hollywood movie, when you don't even know what the bad guy's like main aim was. And it was something to do with uniting three crystal skulls. Take no Indiana Jones. <laughs> like, there was a McGuffin. Three crystal skulls together that apparently, it just made the guy melt. And explode. I, I don't understand exactly what the whole purpose was. That, that happened in Indiana Jones as well, didn't it? Oh, well, they all well, came together, and uh, what's her name? Kate Blanchett exploded. Kate <laughs> yes, Blanchett. She did. I forgot about yeah. that. But yeah, um, I mean, this is very uh, Indiana Jones stylized movie, which makes sense because Simon Winter also directed the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Because. <laughs> Obviously, uh, that'll be where George Lucas got the idea from. He was probably yeah. chatting one day, and he said, "Oh no, I'm doing this thing with these crystal skulls." And George was there going, "Oh yeah, crystal skulls—that's uh, that's a good idea. I might do something about that." Yeah, but but you know what? Uh, I think that this would have been a fantastic opportunity where they could have matched up the Phantom with the Shadow because mm-hmm. they're both Universal properties. Yeah, and they get together to slam evil. That's the freaking tagline of this movie, Slam Evil. As a burgeoning Defenders of the Earth team. That would have been right around this time, Matthew McConaughey was auditioning for the remake of Flash Gordon that never got off the ground. Uh, well, that's, now imagine it's a, a Baldwin Zane McConaughey. <laughs> you know what, though? I would... Uh, no, no offence to a good friend of the show. Russell McKay, um, but I would love to see that come about. Reboot everything, do a new Shadow, do a new Phantom, do the uh, new Flash Gordon, and then try and see if you can get that off the ground. Because t- to be honest, that would be more interesting than yeah. um, they've got like, a ready-made, yeah, like Marvel DC alternative there with characters that aren't owned by them. Yeah, so you have. Um... On oh, Defenders of the Earth, you have like Ming the Merciless as the bad guy, but you can have, was it Mandrake? Yeah. <laughs> Lothar, who is actually created for the cartoon, so that doesn't really count. Um, but I think Baldwin's probably looking for work now as the Shadow, but they've not really uh, mooted that as a reboot, which was strange. And that was due for to be a trilogy as well. Mm. The Phantom was rebooted as a very, very short-lived TV series. And no, I'm not talking about Phantom 2040, which was way ahead of its time. But there was actually a Phantom TV series in the States that lasted, I think, one season. Oh, it was that, that was on... Oh, I want to say that was on Warner Brothers. 
because I'm know. sure I remember seeing something about that. Yeah, I'm sure I saw something which was just about the same shot of him in the chair, like it is on the, the the movie poster. But everything was all kind of dark and a bit muted, and could be. I wrong, never actually but... saw the series. I just know it exists because I saw it on DVD. I was like, "What the hell is this?" Um, but I, I never got to see it. And obviously, Flash Gordon has not been rebooted in all this time. Uh, they did the TV series, which was like, yeah. But I, th- I think that'd be pretty cool. I think it'd be cool as well. You know, you, the only way it's going to happen is if Disney suddenly buys up Universal, and then suddenly they'll be just like putting all those characters in with the Rocketeer and Dick Tracy, and just making that kind of oh, superhero team. Don't, don't, because I want that to happen now. That w- that would be an, an awesome. Oh God, yeah, that would be up. so cool. And uh, to, okay. Uh, in regards to the Phantom, uh, I've got to say I love the cinematography of this movie. I think it is, it, if you like those old style Indiana Jones type movies, this is perfect. Mm. Uh, it it really is, and the Phantom comes across so much of a dork. <laughs> <laughs> he does from the bits where he's supposedly coming in to uh, rescue Christy Swanson, and Christy Swanson's actually you know she's more the hero of the entire movie. And the Phantom is almost, almost Jack Burton levels of yeah. hero to the point where he's like, this is the rescue. And she's like, yeah, great. And just walks straight past him. <laughs> he's just there with his like purple <laughs> suit and his mask <laughs> looking like totally castrated in front of everyone. <laughs> you know, and he's got the ghost of his dad telling him what a loser he is. <laughs> yeah. He's not living up to the throne. But uh, the 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 whole scene was set for this movie in like the opening credits. You've just got a flag waving on screen saying "For those who came in late," and then starts doing uh, a kind of voiceover of like what had happened ages ago. And it's like, well, if you put the flag up for those who came in late, and then you start telling the backstory, they're not really late. No. No, it's easy. They've actually it's just nice, got there on time. It's a nice little touch, though. I can see why they did it, but yeah. Yeah, but um, I've got a guilty pleasure for The Phantom. I've got to admit, I actually get quite a laugh out of watching it. If it's on, I will guarantee I'll watch it. It's just a shame it's never on no, anywhere. Might, might have to track it down somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's worth checking it. out if you like those type of superhero movies that are a step above Sergeant Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. and you know, the the kind of around the shadow or Rocketeer or stuff like that. You'll enjoy it. You know, it's it's a very enjoyable movie. Mm. Uh, that's the anniversaries for this week. So uh, I guess before we bring in our guest, I guess we've got a little bit of a word from our sponsors. You know, there are many different reasons why you would need a will, trusts and protection of your estate following your death. At the end of the day, uh, you want to pass it along to who you want without those unwanted clawing at your hard-earned. In situations where you hate members of your family and you don't want them to have your stuff, or if you're with a partner long-term and are unmarried, if that partner has children from a previous relationship, or if you just want to give specific gifts to people, you need a specific kind of lawyer. That being Morton Young Solicitors. If you want to safeguard your assets from divorce, bankruptcy, creditors, those bad addictive habits, you need a lawyer who really works with you and dedicates their career to helping individuals and getting the right results each time. 
You need a lawyer to be approachable, explain the layout, and answer every phone call that you make. That is my solicitors. Contact Andrew Young at Morton Young Solicitors for a free first consultation. Morton Young, your personal professional for wills, trusts, powers of attorney, probate and administration of estates, as well as personal injury and litigation. My solicitors, call Andrew Young at 0161 464 9731 or email andrew.young at mortonyoung.co.uk today and quote Pottywood as your reference. We know we always love having a fellow director on the show, especially when they're in the bracket of multi-creative and today was no exception. Uh, our guest today got his start in Hollywood writing spec scripts whilst working in the area of special effects and his first script sold being the Hulk Hogan sci-fi comedy Suburban Commando. Bad bluff, Ramsey. This would result in our guest getting his shot in 1993 to direct low-budget motion pictures such as the Viggo Mortensen-led American Yakuza, which is an absolute classic, take my word for it, and the Russell Crowe starring No Way Back. Before leaving low-budget filmmaking to make a career in special effects on such blockbusters as Flubber, Deep Blue Sea, Deeper Bluer, Steve, (laughs) and Red Planet, as well as screenwriting such movies as the brilliant Keanu Reeves starring Constantine. Yeah. Now, he would return to directing with the outstanding independent movie He Was a Quiet Man, which starred Christian Slater, and he's recently had award success with small budget feature Steel Wool, and anticipation's pretty high for his next movie, The Womb, opening soon, I dare to say. Uh, I got to meet Frank in person two years ago in Pasadena, somehow not coming across like a total mark for telling him American Yakuza was one of my all-time favorite finds on VHS. And by the way, that guy, that that was me. Yes, (laughs) I was the one who found it. And uh, you can actually discover that film on Roku right now. It is available. So it's a pleasure to introduce a mentor and friend straight from Los Angeles and where else, obviously, Uh, Frank A. Capello. Frank, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing really good. Um, Everybody's safe. Everybody's good. We're all ready to talk. and I think we're all about ready to be released out of our prison here soon. So it's going to be great. <laughs> oh, the COVID prison has got everyone <laughs> everywhere. I actually never did even consider it. I, I live up here, like I say, at 110 miles, which is a lot of kilometers. <laughs> Me and my empirical measurements. Uh, but yeah, yeah. And I, I was away from it. I got away from it, and where I lived down there was just, every time I came down there, there were, it was just crazier and crazier, and I decided to live here more and more, and so uh, I kind of avoided it all. I, I, making this movie, I go out, we made it during the pandemic, this last thing, and nobody would leave their house in L.A., and I'm up here in uh, Bakersfield, and I say, hey guys, you saw me, I made this little movie, Steel Wool, with no crew, it'll just be me and Cammy, one of the actors, and uh come up came up four or five days and i got all their scenes done and everything nobody got sick but it was illegal because they were all sag actors and they they couldn't even mention that they did it uh then had my friend just recently do a film out in oklahoma and you know one of our states and, and it's uh, they, i'm not sure when i talk to people if they know where anything is but uh it cost them two hundred thousand dollars just for covid 
safety measures. Yeah. And mm. it was so ridiculous how much it cost and slowed them down out of, they only had a four week shoot and it really screwed up everything they said. But, uh, but uh, anyway, that's where I'm at. <laughs> I'm in Los Angeles North. And uh, anyway, ask me anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll take a, a bit of a jaunt back, I guess, to kind of uh, where you started. Uh, and especially, obviously, you, you kind of started out of writing, but it was in a very different way where I believe that your learning to write scripts came from a particular type of magazine. How did you know that? <laughs> I did my research. <laughs> oh my God. Where did I write that? I must have written that somewhere in IMBD or something. I don't know. Yeah, it was Dirt Bite magazine. Ah, you yeah. guys were all thinking it was going to be a different kind of magazine, weren't you? <laughs> uh, Dirt Bike yeah. is what I call her. <laughs> Dirt bag, yeah. Well, I, I rode, I, I had a, a street bike that I stripped everything off of and I called it a dirt bike, but it really wasn't. And we'd go out in the trails and everything and I'd get injured all the time because that bike had no, no shock absorbers to, to speak of. And, but I, uh, I, I invented a character in English class because I was so bad in English meaning all the rules, you know, that's why I'm a screenplay writer. I don't have to know anything really, you know, <laughs> <laughs> basically sixth grade education is all you need. And, uh, yeah, and I, in order to get extra credit, so I'd pass with a C, I, I invented a character. My teacher would let me stand up and it was called Stanley Slow Clutch and his adventures, you know, and it was a motorcycle guy. And every week for six weeks, in order to get the C, I stood up and read this two-page new episode. And I always look back at this my first series. Mm. You know, I, I had a series, and people were interested in the next, the next thing, and the next thing. But I learned to write from that too. I was thinking about this the other day. I walked into L.A. with screenplays that were something like another writer who became very wealthy and very famous, and that Shane Black who did uh, oh, wow. the Lethal Weapon movies mm -hmm. and all those uh, Last Boy Scout. He was right at his peak, making two, four million dollars a picture uh, just for the screenplay. And I would write down the center of the page if it was actions. I just write it all down the center of the page. I didn't break it up into angles and everything. I let the director do that. But everybody kept saying, where did you learn this style? And I says, I read Dirt Bike Magazine. <laughs> and, <laughs> It's very irreverent, you know, like they would say something like, and then he goes down the street. Well, it really wasn't a street. It was more like an alley, you know, a little alley with little trees and everything. And it was all in parentheses. And then it would keep on with the story. And I kind of started writing that way. I would laugh every time I'd read it. And so when I would write, my scripts were written like I'm talking to you. And it wasn't normal. You know, I can say that because a lot of people said, this isn't how you write it. Have you read Sid Field? And I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> after, I, after I sold the script, I read one, yes. Uh, but, you know, you just, you, you get in tune with um, when something comes boring. As a writer, Andrew, you're a writer, and you know this. It's yeah. like out of the whole year, if I'm a writer, for me, it is painful to write. Uh, I yeah. always think I'm not going to find the magic sauce or the genie or whatever it is that makes me want to write. And out of 52 weeks a year, I'll probably have uh, three to four weeks that just hit. That you cannot stop. You've got to sit down and you're scribbling on papers and you're in the car. It doesn't matter where you're at. You're writing. And, and a lot of times when we write, we go, I got to have this certain place. I got to go to this certain cafe. I got to have these certain notes. 
No, when you're really in it, you could do it riding a bike. I mean, you, you could do it anywhere because it's just coming out so fast you can't even stop. And I know when that's working for me because I'm 20 pages ahead writing notes of what's going to happen in 20 pages. In the last 10 years, I haven't written that much. I have to be honest. And it happened because of, I think you and I talked about this, Constantine too. When I had yeah. written that script and turned it in for one-sixth of what I used to make, but at the request of Keanu Reeves himself, who loved the idea, they, they still haven't called me in 10 years. Mm. Not one of the eight producers ever called me to say, we hate it, we love it, go away, come back, because they were never going to make it. And uh, Keanu and I didn't know that. And so I had written this thing in Czech Republic. I was there for three weeks. Yeah, there was a girl. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I had three months to write it, but I wrote it all in three weeks. By writing there, I came up with stuff that I never would come up with. In Constantine too, they allowed me to write anything I wanted. They didn't give me the story. They said, just go. I had written nine pages from a dream one night. My agent sent it to uh, Akiba Goldsman and Francis Lawrence, who was the director on that. And it was the day before Christmas, and they had me come in downtown LA, which is terrible to get down there. And they said, okay, you got our attention. What's this about? So I told them a little bit. They told Keanu, and then I met him at a restaurant which is the funniest story in the world. The reason why I love that guy so much is he is so authentic and he's so not star-like that he shows up on this little motorcycle and he has a jacket on and he can't get the zipper all the way down, right? So we're, we're sitting out on a patio and all these people inside are going, that's Keanu Reeves, that's Keanu Reeves. And he couldn't get out of it. And for the first five minutes, I'm trying to help him put his leg up through the jacket to finally sit down. And that's, you know, I really, I saw him here. I don't know if you guys watch Steve Colbert or even see clips that he was talking yeah. just recently, about three weeks ago, a month ago, he said, Steve Colbert says, listen, if there was a character you could ever do again, who would it be? And he said, John Constantine. Everybody applauded. And they didn't hear him say, but it will never happen. They didn't mm -hmm. hear him. And he goes, you do know that there's going to be somebody out there is going to do this. And so that night, I have not talked to Keanu in eight years. I haven't texted him or anything. I don't bother him. I text him. I says, you know what? It's really nice to see a star as authentic as you with no canned bullshit, shaking, your hands were shaking. <laughs> You're shy as hell. It's just amazing. I love it. And he says, and I really felt your pain saying that we tried. I didn't expect it. Five minutes later, I get a text back going, yeah, Frank, we did try. Both of us tried. They're just not going to do it. I wrote the sequel. And uh, he acted out scenes with all the producers. He loved it so much. He hadn't seen the script yet. He was just what I told him. And he's sitting there acting it out, and it took nine months to get the contract. If you have a star walk in on a sequel with you, and it takes nine months, they're not doing it. They didn't want to do it. They just paid me because Keanu said pay him. Mm. You know, let him write yeah. it. It's funny. I still have people calling me today going, get him the new script. Get him the I said, he doesn't own it. He can't make it. It's not his. You understand how well, what Burt Reynolds could do? I said, those weren't Burt Reynolds' movies. He didn't make the films. We are going to come back onto Constantine later because we <laughs> yeah, are. Right. I think you've just covered well, one of our later questions. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, 
No, 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 because it it is. I love that movie. I remember. Um, I never actually saw it in the cinema, but I did catch it on uh, DVD and absolutely adored it. But no, we are going to be coming back onto that. Yeah, later. okay, good. Um, but everyone has got influences. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much you say, "Oh, I am not influenced by anything. I am my own original voice." There is always something behind your work. So, what kind of movies were your earliest influences? Strange because I, I'm old enough to have not been born into Star Wars. That came when I was like 19 or 20. Uh, but the movies I remember, and when I've, I've thought about it, there was a, a movie called Red Sky at Morning. And it was with the wow. kid that ended up being on a little house on the prairie or something. I forgot the guy's name now, the actor. And, there, and the reason why I remember that movie so much is... It was just, it's a character movie. And it's a kid whose father's in the military, which my dad was. We, they moved to an island, and his father eventually dies in the movie. Oops, I let that go. And so, <laughs> spoilers. spoilers. <laughs> anyway, the great thing is he meets a young girl there, and there's an artist there that's painting nude women, and also uh, the bus of famous people they know. And he helps him one day lift it all the way in the top of a mountain, and it's his father's head, uh, you know, up on the mountain. It's just that movie, for some reason, I think because we were in the, the military, and I lived in Germany. I lived all over the place when I was young and never really could meet anybody for longer than two years because you were gone again. You had to move again and again. And so we make friends really quick, but we never had long-term relationships, which is kind of who I am now. You know, I'm, I'm a friendly guy. I can talk to anyone. But uh, the long term, I get bored. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, my my influences. That was one, and there was another one, which was uh, a strange movie about um, loggers. It, God, it even slits my mind because I remember saying that was one of the movies that inspired me. It was character movies. It was a great Santini. I love that movie. Oh, the Robert Duvall movie. Yeah. And, and it, see, I think a lot of this has to do with yeah. how I grew up. My dad was in the Air Force. I had airplanes flying over every day, jets going out uh, and all that. And I lived that government life on the Air Force base where you, you basically get with your friends and you try to sneak into the NCO club because there's a band playing every night and all the guitars are up on the stage during the day. So we'd go up there and sneak around and start playing the guitars and everything. And we never stole any, but you know, we did all that. And it, it was just, you were Air Force brats. We were brats, that's what they call us, military brats. And there's a whole movie in that that I have not written yet. I'm trying to get my sister to write it. And she goes, that was a boring life. I said, you're writing vampire movies. Wake up. <laughs> being, being the army brat, is that what brought you around to writing Suburban Commando? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Uh, <laughs> and this was your first script. It was a first script that sale. Sold, that right? year, mm. yeah. that original script, was the fourth script I wrote that year. And I kept sending them out, sending them out. A friend of mine had moved already to Hollywood. Says, can you get this to somebody? Could you get that to somebody? And um, I was thinking about this because, uh, about this interview. And I said, something hanging on my wall right now is from one of the first scripts I saw, sent. And it had Universal Studios at the top of the rejection slip, right? 
I didn't care what the rest of the words were. I just got something from Universal Studios. It's right there in the top. Someone from Universal has written me, you know, and it said, don't send us anything else. <laughs> and it's, I got it. Hey, it's all that was on there. And then it was the lady's name at the bottom, you know, and I said, oh, my, Cynthia McGarth. You know, you remember the people that really dissed you. And... Uh, <laughs> Suburban Command, I, can't, I don't even know how it came about. I, I just kept thinking, uh, I was trying one after another, one after another. I had one called Trivia Date. Uh, I had one, uh, uh, you know, like four screenplays in one year, and finally I had this idea. And, and basically it was, okay, oh, I think what it was was watching um, Forbidden Planet. Uh, there's a scene in Forbidden Planet where the alien goes to his ship, and the girl follows him, and that's when she sees Gort, the robot, you know, standing yeah. outside the ship, if you guys know. And I always thought that, you know, she snuck there, and she discovered what he was. And I think that's where it started, that here's this guy that you let him rent the back house, and then he, he leaves every night, and he goes somewhere. And so you follow him, and he goes to this warehouse, and inside a warehouse is a freaking spaceship, right? And then while he's trying to wait for it to get repaired, or I can't remember even my own story right now, but he was waiting for something to charge up or something, that uh, he'd slip in and try on these boots. And the boots were powered rocket boots. And then he had a suit that was impregnable, so he could do it. So he becomes a, a superhero at night. So he tries on all this stuff and goes out there and does it. And the original script... Uh, I brought the casting idea to Hollywood, which was Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. And I said, this is what I want to do. I want to make a movie with these two. And, and it was actually the casting thing that really got interest, people interested in, in buying it. Uh, I mean, I got really good reviews on there, and that was great and all that. But um, the casting decision. So when, when I wrote that screenplay, I went to Hollywood, and I had a guy that had seen the other three scripts finds come in i think i can sign you so he's on melrose place another thing melrose i'm gonna go on melrose you know i saw there was a series called melrose you know when you don't live in la everything's exciting right so i go there and there's this guy named david rotman you know and he's a little guy and he's going frank i love this i love that uh, uh i saw your video because i did midnight movie express i did a lot of directing commercial stuff and I, i'm gonna sign you so he signs me and I find out later, he was not an agent. It was his uh, uh, his agents. He was the assistant to the agent. He'd only been there three months. She was on vacation, and he sat down behind this giant desk and acted like he was an agent. So I was his first client, and then he sold Suburban Commando for more money than I had made in like five years. And I said, "Wow, I'm in the right place." You know, I all I did was think of something and somebody paid me and my friend who worked for IBM we were kids at 12 years old you know I spend every dime I'd get every time I sold a newspaper I'd go to the hobby shop and buy an airplane or something he would save his money and then he got trained at IBM and then he would go and repair giant hospital computers and I was just frank and then he gets this script one day and he goes how much they pay you and it was like 175 to 300,000, right? Depending if they make it. My first script sale. And he puts it in his hand and he weighs it. He puts his hand thinking it's going to have weight. And he goes, how could you make that much money with this? It's just a bunch of words. And I said, 
I have imagination. You know, it's like (laughs) he really couldn't understand it because he's a tech guy. He couldn't understand how can you make money just coming up with something that wasn't real. And I've had a problem with this, you know, with both wives that I've had (laughs) that, you know, I'll be writing something. And Andrew, I don't know if you're like this, but when you're writing something, you're in this world of writing. And all you're thinking about is the character and everything. And then you'll say something like, you know, but why would he do this? And they don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you're talking about that thing that doesn't exist. You know, don't even talk to me about that. We got problems with the plumbing, you know, or this. And you do get tend to get so into the story sometimes that you forget about real life, you know. And uh, I've been fortunate enough that once I finally did start writing, I would go to Paris. I would go to Czech Republic. I would go to places to write. I had the money to do it. And I used to say, if they paid me enough, I would write just on the flight. It's 11 hours going to Paris or or Rome or something. And it would force me to write because the ticket costs so much money that I would have to keep writing to keep writing. You know, I'd fly maybe six places in six weeks and then I'd have a whole screenplay. But I never did that. But my... um, just to tell you a little story, Lauren Donner, who I ended up working with a lot, she does the X-Men movies, and yeah. her earlier career, she did um, she did the Matthew Broderick uh, movie, uh, the one where they wake up in the morning, Michelle Pfeiffer is a wolf, and he's a this. Lady Hawk. Yeah. yeah. Lady Hawk. And that's where she met Dick Donner. She told me once, why do you want to direct? I mean, why do you want to make films? Why do you want to direct them? You're a great writer. Why do you just, just stay a writer? And I said, because I want to control it. She goes, here's, here's a director. This is what directors do. They're on a movie two years. It comes out. They get panned, and they want to commit suicide. They get therapy. They're alcoholics, drug addicts. Why do you want that? You can write three screenplays. You can go anywhere in the world. And then when they make the movie and f*** it up, you can say, well, that wasn't my fault. It was a great script before I handed it to them. And she's right. And I'm almost in that mode now. Uh, it's taken me this long to say, you know what? making a film is hard and especially the way I've been doing it lately and uh, and then if you don't hit the ending right like I'm at right now uh, people will say I love everything but the ending which means they didn't like the movie right so it is painful and it is you have to work through your own psychosis and all this kind of stuff but anyway uh, what was you talking about (laughs) I don't know (laughs) I get off the subject a little bit. Well, following Suburban Commando, uh, you actually do take up the director's chair on the movie American Yakuza, uh, which, as I've mentioned before, and I think this is how we came to know each other, it was a favorite movie of mine. I discovered in a video store that was selling the ex-rental tapes, and I picked it up. And when I watched it, it was very different from how the actual video art was kind of marketed because you expected it to be a martial arts movie and instead it was just this really gritty uh japanese gangster movie which wasn't very hollywood at the time you were actually a bit ahead of the curve so how did this project come to be because at the time movies that chow yun fat was doing in japan and things like that i mean they were big but they'd not crossed over into the u.s yet Right. Um, that was my first film as a director of a Hollywood movie of a studio. Well, it wasn't a studio movie, but it was a low-budget film. And I basically had done a short film called The Ivory Tower uh, with my own money from Suburban Commando. 
And that movie got seen by a lot of people and it got picked up by a distributor and I actually made my money back on it, which is amazing. One of the people was a company called Neo Motion Pictures. Uh, Joel is really good. I'm actually working for Joel right now on this edit. And that was a long time ago. And he said, listen, uh, we like your style, but it's too Spielberg. All your stuff is very slick, very well lit, designed and everything. Uh, we want you to do a movie called American Yakuza, possibly, but it's got to be gritty. So the two Japanese producers came in the room, and I started just lying, bullshitting, and saying things like, I'm going to take a Super 8 camera, I'm going to throw it across the room during action scenes, and I'm going to get these shots you've never seen before in a movie. And, you know, I'm going to do this and this and that. But they didn't trust me because I was so excited about doing my first film, I smiled too much. And yeah. the Japanese just don't trust somebody that smiles. So on that, I got the film basically because of the short film. And uh, it was four weeks, I think four weeks shooting, like 22 days or something like that. And, uh, and Vigo came on. And Vigo at the time was doing Carlito's Way with Al Pacino. Yes. And he had to gain weight for the movie to look like a has-been fighter. And so we got him when his belly was sticking out a little bit. And then he had to go away and lose weight to go back to that picture. There's a scene in the movie in American Yakuza where the Japanese girl's lying on top of him and he's got his belly against the mattress. Well, that's why. I used to say, unless your penis can go that far around, there's no way you guys are having sex because you're, you're laying on top of him. I don't know what's going on. But, but Vigo was just such a good guy to work with as my first star to work with because he was a true artist. Uh, the, the thing that I remember most is, you know, that... Um, I didn't write the original screenplay on that, but I rewrote it to death. But I was not allowed to say that because in the Writers Guild, you have to get paid yeah. to write. And they gave me 25 grand to, to direct the whole movie. And I was on the movie for like eight to nine months, 10 months. And I had, didn't have a lot of money and that didn't really keep me in business at all. But um, I just remember the feeling the crew had because for them, even at the end, they said it's so refreshing to work with a first timer that knows what they're doing. Because you still have, you love what you're doing. And you, and you honestly know how to do it for some reason. And that always hit me that the crew would work harder because my energy. It was just me. Just because I had the energy and I was so excited and I would move lights and I'm not supposed to and I would do everything and I work harder than anyone. And, and that's the way every film I've ever done is, is that way too. And uh, I think that's just something that you learn. You don't have to be a tyrant. You just have to work your ass off and not sit around in some chair in Video Village and just talk about the past, you know. But I love that movie too. And you're not the only person that's come up to me and tell me that was one of their favorite, which is, I'm really surprised at that, honestly. But I love the ending of that movie. And you don't yeah. see movies like that at the end, carrying this guy down the stairs. And he almost really tripped, too. It's in the film. He would have dropped him, and they'd have both <laughs> rolled down that staircase. <laughs> Vigo seems to have that thing with uh, injuries, doesn't he? But I'll tell you, you know, what I loved was... The writers on the premiere night, there were 600 people in Paramount Theater, and uh, I had changed everything. I'm not saying they didn't come up with the story, but 
the last 20 minutes of that movie hardly have any dialogue. I just cut all the dialogue and I did it all visually. And they, they dropped to their knees and they were, we're not worthy. And I was so embarrassed, you know, and they go, this is a night that they're going to remember this director because, and what I did wrong, and that's a whole other subject, was sticking with the same producers. And being loyal to them actually hurt my career. I didn't move forward. And a lot of people saying, make a film for us. And I didn't go because I was loyal to them. Anyway. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's that movie uh, is still a favorite. And matter of fact, the girl that's just calling me right now is Anzu, the girl, the Japanese girl in that. Oh, she's in, Anzu. She's in, she's in this new movie, The Womb, and oh my God, and she's so good in it. And, you know, they, they keep asking me, when can we see it? And I'm going, not yet. <laughs> so, I mean, not, that's it, where I'm at right In now. about nine months' time. Um, oh my God, it's yeah. been a year and a half. Oh my God. Anyway, Was next Vigo um, always considered to be the uh, the lead in that because around about this time like you say he was still doing supporting roles yeah and i think the reason why we got him because he's the lead you know that was great and uh you know it was don phillips don phillips the casting director found vigo he found matthew mcconaughey he's the one that discovered sean penn mm-hmm. and jude law a lot of them and john just died here recently like three weeks ago and he was on this film and I didn't know who Vigo was saving my life. I didn't know who Russell Crowe was either when he brought him on. But Vigo was just, I would love to do more movies. But, man, that guy is so selective in what he does. Uh, He worked with uh, David Cronenberg like three times in a row. And, you know, it's just really hard to get his attention on anything. He's done whole movies in Spanish. You know, he doesn't care about being a star. The only reason why he was in Lord of the Rings because his son, Henry, wanted him to be in him. You know, so... Just a really good person to start out with, you know what I mean? And it, it's like I brag about this one, one day. I said, I have directed four Academy-nominated male actors in four films. And they all go, were they in your movie? I said, no, but they've all been nominated. You know, and Russell Crowe went off and won, you know, one. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nice pedigree to be able to say that anyway, you know, that I've been around those type of people and all. And uh, But... Uh, no, so uh, thank you for liking that film, honestly. <laughs> no, I do. And, and to be honest, I mean, uh, Ryu Ishibashi, he has all the charisma of Chow Yun-Fat way before Chow made it to the U.S. Now, did Hollywood miss a trick with this guy? I, I don't know, but man, him and Vigo hit it off. They, they, they were really good friends for years. And uh, Vigo just liked him a lot. Ryu Ishibashi, was it Sawam? Yeah, he was Sawamoto. And... He was a great guy, and you know it's it's funny. There's parties, and Japanese are known for not being able to handle their handle their liquor, their sake. And there was a night <laughs> at the rap party on that movie where we're at their swimming pool, the big house that the Japanese had got. That uh, he fell asleep, and Vigo tattooed him with just messages with a matching marker all over him. <laughs> I mean, I feel like. I, but, you know, they, they do pranks like that to each other. And, you know, it's just it's really, you're right about the charisma, man. And I never saw him anything after that. I never saw him do anything he was in, in America. Sean Penn's movie, The Crossing Guard. That was the last Did time he I really? saw him in an American movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, he played the guy who um, ran Jack Nicholson's, I think it's art gallery or something like that. And that would make sense because Don Phillips had discovered uh, Vigo and also Sean Penn. 
so probably said, hey, you should use this guy in our film. Yeah, that would work out really cool. But uh, there's another thing. There's a story about that. This is how actors are. I got like 10 pages of single-line notes after Vigo saw the film of changes that he wanted me to make. He goes, you know, when I come in the room and I go, what are you going to do? He says, I got too big of a southern accent. Can you cut the line? I read all of these. I went to Don Phillips. I said, what do I do? He says, throw it in the trash. And I threw it in the trash. Never made one change he wanted. But the movie's <laughs> good for it, you know. Well, Ryu was also in a movie with Michael Rooker called Back to Back. And were you actually consulted that this movie, Back to Back, was getting released Back. as American Yakuza 2? Oh, well, that's from the same company. That was Roger Nygaard, a friend of mine who's still a friend of mine. He's an editor on Curb Your Enthusiasm, actually. He's, he's a comic <laughs> editor. He's won awards as a comic editor. But he, yeah, he got the second film. and Or was it the third? I think it was the third. The second one was... Uh, was Virginia Madsen was in it, and her son yes. was killed by a Yakuza that guy, was Blue, Blue Tiger. Tiger. Yeah, and they had my whole crew because they went right from one film to the next film, and my whole crew was with them. And uh, then the next one was a brand new one, and they called it American Yakuza Two, and it had nothing to do with it, nothing. And uh, you know, so Roger did. He had a different style of editing in that movie too, where he did a lot of jump cuts, and we weren't doing that back then. And then there was one more. And here recently, only in the last year, I heard they wanted to redo American Yakuza as a big budget film, that uh, that the Japanese were talking about it. But it comes and goes. You hear about it, then you don't. And they wanted Vigo back, and I'm, you know, he's gotten a little older, but maybe you could do a kind of a sequel to it. I don't know. But, you know, as a first film that, that was, it was a very dramatic film, too. I mean, killing his girlfriend and just a pool of blood. And, and I had a lot of fun with the locations and everything. And I got to do whatever I wanted to. Again, the producers started trusting me. You remember when the cars are pulling out on the desert? And I go, listen, I need five cars. And they go, we're giving you one. And I said, take it out of my salary. And they said, you're hardly making anything. I said, well, take it out anyway, because we need five cars. So they got the four other cars, and they didn't charge me. And they, they used to bet on me at night. We're going into second meal. It's going to cost us a lot of money. I said, who's betting against me that we can get it done in 20 minutes? And, and they would bet against. And I, there was a scene in there where the Oyabon and Sawamoto are sitting there. One's in profile, and one is facing us. That was the scene that night that I had to shoot in 20 minutes. And I told the DP, a friend of mine, I go, just rack focus between each line. And we, we can make it out of here before pizza. You know, <laughs> so we did that and, and I won. And so at the end of the whole shoot, they go, well, we're going to do a mix. It's going to be a cheap mix. I go, can I go to Florida? Because I know this mixing and just do it there. And they said, they actually trusted me. Say, yeah, go. And then I didn't go uh, because they trusted me. That was what was really weird. So they put a little bit more money into the music. or into the, And my composer friend, who did the music on the film I just did, American Yakuza's music is amazing. I think it's, it's still the best, best score he's ever done, David Williams. And he and I had kind of a falling out about 10, 15 years ago. And I said, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have Dave do The Womb. And he has done something way outside the box this time. He's gone total sound effect. Hans Zimmer, whatever the hell it's called, but it, it's made the film really, really good, you know, really good. But anyway, let's get rumor control under control. All right. The word is that real Yakuza members were uh, involved to some degree in the production. So 
Is this rumor or is this actual truth? There could be truth to that because at the end of it, when the movie came out good and they didn't mind me smiling <laughs> and they thought then they wanted me to do more movies, they wanted me to go with them to Japan and be with Yakuza and be in these geisha, geisha houses or whatever, but I couldn't bring my wife and then she wouldn't let me go. and and so yeah and that by the way that ceremony that we do was so authentic a movie came out that same year i think called black rain and it was michael douglas and it was Mm -hmm. a japanese our movie did better in japan than that movie because it was more authentic it was more yeah yeah the real stuff i mean folding the little napkins everything together and they were standing right there the two to two japanese guys the producers and they made me do it exactly that way you know and so uh so i'm kind of proud of that that they would i would have loved to have gone i think that would have been one hell of an experience but it's one of those things going you're going to go where japan you're going to meet yakuza and i said why did i tell her <laughs> i should have just kept my mouth shut it's a business trip Yes. yes. Oh, I, I learned that. I was very naive then. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've mentioned earlier that the movie No Way Back, and it was the first uh, US movie for Russell Crowe in a lead capacity at least. Now, was this a hard sell to get him approved to financiers who may have only seen him internationally in the controversial movie Romper Stomper around that time? Well, I didn't have to deal with that. Obviously, the producers had to deal with it. Uh, he was also in some of some of us, some of us, some of us, or something like this, where he played a gay rugby player, and it was really interesting to see him in those two movies, Romper Stomper and that. And a lot of people were afraid of the guy when he showed up, uh, you know, because of that. He had a, you know, Romper Stomper is pretty much a gang movie and all. But so I don't know how they did it. I think the movie was about two and a half million, and it was a five-week shoot. And Russell was sold as if it was a $6 million movie. He was told that. And I, I only bring that up because when he found out at the end, he wouldn't do any publicity. And it was a straight-to-video anyway, but uh, he got mad at the producers for lying to him. He didn't dislike the movie. He just didn't like that it was so cheap. <laughs> he said to me, now I know why the prop guys were so bad. You know, that, that's the only thing he could say, but... <laughs> So, yeah, so I didn't know anything about the financing on it and everything, but uh, but uh, that's a whole other story, that movie. That's the first time I ever felt like I was working because every every other movie I've ever made has always been fun. That movie felt like I was working. Russell Crowe has a, a bit of a reputation for being difficult at times. So was, was there any challenges working with him uh, when he first got to the U.S.? Uh, no. And I'll, I'll tell you why. The first night that we met him, we all had to go play pool. And he played a $100 pool. Each ball in was 100 bucks. I wasn't making enough to play. And that was really a mistake on my part. The AD, the assistant director, he went ahead and did it. They became pals real quick because he took on that challenge. And I says, well, I'm not really good at pool. I'm going to lose $1,000 here in a second. And, you know, I'm not getting paid that much, but I got paid better than on the last, the first one, but I didn't do it. But it, so it took a while for Russell and I to warm up to each other. Um, and 
here's the thing about Russell then. He wasn't the pain in the ass he became, I guess, to other people. But I always said, he's a man's man. That's just the way he is. He's he's doesn't take any shit from people that are idiots. And it was never about the people that did their job right. It was about the people that were that we'd all like to smack, you know. So, but he was the one that could do it. He never hurt anybody. He never did that. He was the most generous actor on that film because now we had another Japanese actor. Uh, gosh, I can't remember his name now. But he was their Tom Cruise. Uh, he was in so many series and everything, and he did his entire role phonetically. He did not know a bit of English. So if you changed one word. He didn't know where we were, but Russell, there was a night that it was raining really bad, and I shot Russell's, and we were on 35 millimeter film back then, not digital, so we're rolling film, and it's raining on Russell's, and I turn the camera around, and there's no rain, and I shoot about 50 feet, which is not even a minute or whatever, and I say, okay, that's it, we're going to have to come back, and Russell goes, what are you doing? You shot like 300 feet on me, why aren't you shooting on him? I said, it's raining on yours and it's not raining on his we're gonna have to come back anyway so shoot it anyway I mean my god it just makes the guy feel so bad and I go Russell so he calls me out in front of the whole crew he said something to me that just pissed me off and I I remember because it was raining our clothes were soaking wet we had these big jackets on I took him over to the side and I said listen if you want to compliment something I did, shout it to the world. But if you have a problem with me, you say it in fucking private. He became my friend then. That's when he did. And we <laughs> drank all night. And we drank Rabatoon. I think it's called Rabatoon beer or something. Or no, the Rabatoon was the hockey. I forgot. It was the, the rugby team he knew. No, there was a beer, a certain beer that he drank. And he brought a bunch of it. And he and I drank till sunup that night that day and we never had a problem after that again you just had to stand up to him you just had to tell him who's the boss and I learned that from Dick Donner too he said always make everyone feel they're lucky to be on your film whether you're nobody or a big director and you really have to set that precedent pretty early and that was like a weekend and then the rest of the shoot was okay but there was a scene in there where we had um, a helicopter hovering right over us making all this dust and I'm trying to tell him, you know, this is what you got to do. And he goes, but that doesn't make sense. And I said, we have a helicopter over us. And he finally goes, oh, oh, okay. And then he did it, right? And then I look at the film now and I go, he was freaking right. Uh, anyone could have disarmed this guy the way he was holding his gun. This, and I'm worried about the camera move. I've got this long, giant dolly going all the way around everything. And I'm not paying attention to one of the sidekick bodyguards from the bad guy and he was holding his gun like a limp donut and and if russell got out of the car he could have grabbed that thing and just disarmed in a second i see it now and i go i should have paid attention to what was happening and not to the camera and it's something that directors get caught up in you get caught up in the the uh the actual production of it and not what the actors need from you you know and so russell i thought you know for the most part there's there's another one where he's with Helen Slade. Oh, God. Oh, I, I forgot about that one. Uh, at the end of the movie, herself. she's in a boat, or she's 
giving mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to her son, uh, to his son. And he has just dragged him out of the water, put him up on this pier, and she has to give mouth-to-mouth. So she's doing this with nobody there. And Russell's sitting over out of camera. And I'm in a boat holding the guy from moving around with the camera. So I can't hear what Russell's doing. But after the take, Helen comes up to me and she goes, you do not know how to direct. And I'm going, what the hell? And she says, ah, and you didn't clear my eye line. We're at a lake. And there was someone a mile away walking around that was bothering her. It wasn't that at all. So I see the dailies the next day and I hear Russell Crowe on there going, acting like a little child. Oh, please give him mouth to mouth. Please, please. And he was a total dick. He was being just a total dick, right? So the day when she says that, she walks by me. She goes, you do not know how to direct. I walk by Russell, and this is exact words, women. (laughs) He did that so much to her. They were in the car. You know when you're wearing microphones, wireless, you don't know. Sometimes they don't turn them off. And I'm on the camera car. We're ready in the desert. And she's in the car, Helen Slater, and she's so sweet. And she's going, well, let's pass the time. Let's name songs that start with the letter A. Within like two two seconds, she's getting out of the car, pissed off, and walking into the desert. And I'm going, what the, everybody's going, what the hell? And I heard what he said. And I, I swear to God, it was the most crude, rude thing. A C word came out, another word came out, and she just ran into the desert. There's snakes out there, and she didn't give a damn, right? But later, he went to her concert. She's a singer, and she has an acoustic set and everything. And one night, he he went to her, and I I met him. That was the only time I've ever seen him since that movie, House of Blues. And he had had Catherine Zeta-Jones with him, who did not look like she did 10 years later. She was just a normal-looking girl. And actually, my friend, the composer, Dave Williams, she gave him her number. And, and I'm going, who was that? And he had ah, this girl, Catherine James. She's in this movie, Phantom, and it, there's a big scandal with her and some guy. and all. But he went right to, uh, to Helen Slater's concert, stayed with her all night in the sense that he was supportive and everything. And he was just a really good guy. And so this whole thing about him being a hothead, I think, comes out of just him being a man. And matter of fact, I was fortunate enough and blessed enough to rewrite a script with Ron Howard in New York for like three days. I was there with a script of mine, Rain in Spain. And he asked me about Russell Crowe because I had directed him. He said, is he a crazy guy? And I said, if you know what you're doing and you do, he'll be fine. And that was Beautiful Mind. Ah. They went on and made it, which won the Academy oh, Award. Wow. You know, So it's just such a small world. And you know, I feel like I'm not even part of Hollywood. And then when I start talking about things, I realize how many people I really have worked with, or at least you know, been been in contact with and got to know. And for very short times, it's never a long. You know, these people that got out of high school and they all went to high school, like Seth Rogen, and they have all these friends. Well, they're always in touch with each other. But when you make a movie with an actor that you don't really know to begin with, you, you barely ever talk to them again. You know, it was just the project. Sometime you'll see each other. I saw Russell again in Beverly Hills one night. Oh, God, this is it. I shouldn't mention this story, but 
I'm going to. Oh, what you, the hell? You've led into it now. Wow, <laughs> come, on. come on. So there's a place called the 1912 Club, and it's in the Beverly Hills Hotel. And when I go out with my English friends, they always hit three or four or five bars. And we went in there one night, and it was raining, and they put up all of this plastic outside, and they enclosed each of the tables in plastic. So one of, this girl I knew, Ari, she comes in. She goes, Russell Crowe's sitting outside. And I go, oh, really? You got to introduce me. I said, I haven't talked to this guy in years. You got to introduce me. He was there doing a movie. He had long hair. He was a newspaper guy or something. I can't remember. He took over for Brad Pitt. And I walk out there, and I just poke my head in, and I'm behind the girl he's with. And he, I go, hey, Russell, what are you doing? He says, I'm here making a movie. And he's, his eyes are like, go away. And I, and I said, this is my friend Ari. And he goes, hi, Ari. You know who it was? It was Ivanka Trump. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but Russell, that's the last time I saw him, you know. And so you don't see these people much. Okay, so shortly after No Way Back, you kind of took a break from directing and put a bit of a focus on special effects around this time. As we mentioned, uh, you did uh, Deep Blue Sea, uh, flubber red planet to name a few uh was this just uh taking a time out after directing no way back and was this a a decision you were going to go in this direction and not touch on directing again well no i did i did special effects even while i was writing and uh ready to make another movie uh, i did them because a lot of my friends uh, i had one good friend that did uh not Independence Day, the one he did before that. Roland Emmerich did the one Stargate. with Egypt. Stargate. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, and he asked me to do some work on Red Planet. Animatics, animatics, like storyboards. So I did some animatics, but they, I put dust in them and depth of field in them and everything. And he's going, holy crap, these are almost good enough to show in the trailer. And so they actually put one or two in the trailer. Then I did a bunch of them. I, I, I think I made like $200 a piece, 250 something like that. Not much. But that back then, they didn't have their own departments. Nowadays, companies have their own departments to do animatics and all. But then he asked me, <clears throat> would you like to do some real shots in the film? And I said, well, like what? He says, well, there's a whole sequence where they, they come out of the, the ship and they open up in a parachute going down to Mars and all that, all the way to the point where it hits the ground. And I said, okay. Now... The crazy thing was I was trading stocks in 1999. I was a day trader. And so while I'm writing, because the markets close at 1 o'clock in California, I would day trade. And I was making money doing that. And the market crashed. And my wife didn't know that I had a what they call a margin account, which if you put in money, you can get double the amount of money. But if you lose it, now you owe them money. The market <laughs> crashed. I lost a lot of money. I'll say $175,000 was gone. And now I had made some money to get to that point, but it, everybody lost because the whole market just crashed. I mean, Yahoo, when I was trading, it was like $300 and went down to like 10. Everything just died. And if you didn't get out, you would have, you know, you'd have owed everybody money. But so I get this call from this guy and he says, I didn't want to do special effects. And he says, do you want to do some shots for the film? And I didn't. I said, how many? And, and he says, I need like 10. He says, how much do you want? And I go, $175,000. <laughs> and I swear to God, in six weeks, I made 175000 
I did those shots. Wow. And so I go to my wife and I say, I got it back. And she goes, it doesn't matter. You lost it. And I said, well, I would have never taken the job. I wouldn't have taken that job. So I didn't decide to do effects. I was just doing them. Flubber came out of the same thing. Uh, basically, I ended up having some, some shots in, that, in the trailer of that movie. So it was just... It was just a way for me. I already knew how to do it, and I have no pride. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, I'm making movies now. I'm not going to work on your film doing stupid. I'm doing it right now. I'm editing, and I'm doing effects on this film of a friend of mine. So, you know, we all help each other. That's the whole point. <clears throat> I'm going to need their help someday. I'll help them. And, you know, for me, doing effects is like falling off a log. Uh, last night, matter of fact, there was a shot they didn't get in this film you know, and it was basically the truck overturning. It has three people inside, and it hits this thing, and it rolls, and they never shot. It was going to cost them 70000 to go back. And I did it. I went and bought a truck on 3D Trader for $144 CG. You know, I made it look like theirs, and I did it in Blender, and looks as real as real. And I, I told him, he said, well, I saved you 70000 Shouldn't I get like 3% of the savings or something? But, uh, but anyway, that's why I do it. I do it because uh, I like to keep my, my hands in it to where I still know how to do it. Because if you've ever used software, you know if you go away from it a while, you forget all the shortcut keys. Mm. You forgot how to do things. So you got to keep your, yourself. So, yeah, I was doing a movie called Dog Star uh, at that time, right after No Way Back. I, I flew, and I had Christian Slater. That's what's so funny. And it was a big, giant sci-fi film on tanks with missile silos on another planet and everything. And I really wanted to show what I could do. I knew effects. I knew character and all this. And I really wanted to do something like James Cameron would do, you know. So I went all the way to Babelsberg, Germany. It's like a universal studio. But they were more expensive than America. So it went from like a $20 million budget. Then the producer said... Can you do it for 12? And then when we'd say yes, they'd go, can you do it for six? And then finally went down to four. And, I, <laughs> and so we knew that he didn't have the money. And it was Robbie Little. He, he was the one that distributed American Yakuza, No Way Back and all. But they didn't have that kind of money. So, yeah, that the effects I keep doing, the movie I just did, is I have 430 effect shots in it. And wow. at least half of them are hard. And I... The pandemic hit, and I said, I'm going to learn new software, and I'm going to use it to be able to do smoke, fire, water, oil, everything I want to try, physics, and and just the normal stuff, and that's what I do now. So, yeah, I did effects. I was going to do a whole movie. I, I did a little thing. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's on one of some sort of line called Cars, before Cars came out, the movie, and it was basically... My story was a junkyard where every car goes to die, and there's the crusher where they bring it in every month, and they crush the cars flat, and they take them away. My son was only 12 years old at the time, and I said, okay, I'm going to make a movie all by myself. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, I'm going to do all the voices you know, first, and then I'm going to look at my face, and I'm going to animate the cars, and I'm going to do a little three-minute sequence. And I did it in two weeks, three minutes. I built the models. A lot of them I got online, but I built the junkyard. And it was a lot of fun, and, and it's still on there. People still see it and everything. But I'm thinking, if I make an entire feature, I'm going to be alone for three years. 
And yeah, <laughs> I'd be the first to do it. And since at the time I knew Warner Brothers really good, I knew Paramount, I knew the presidents of those companies. I could come in there with this film, but I would disappear. And I would lose my career as a writer. I would lose everything. And so I stopped doing it and all. So effects are, effects are just a hobby, really, for me and for my movies. And believe me, if there's a space of time where I wasn't making a movie, it wasn't because I wasn't trying. Because <laughs> I, mean, you know, I was trying. And I mean, the one that we had Dogstar just in 2014 or 15 was the same story, only I had to rewrite it because I didn't own the rights anymore. But it was giant tanks on another planet and uh but it, this was like oceans 11 it was like we're going for the gold like three kings which i love that movie and and matter of fact it's just starting up again since one of the producers that knew me back then said did i want to make that movie again I, yeah right i don't believe anything but that movie had gary oldman we got him on board as the captain and he dies halfway through the movie so we didn't have to hire him for very long but all the actors love gary oldman we had remy malik who just won for, wow. uh, what's his name? You know, the, the, the Bohemian Rhapsody. Rhapsody. Queen. Yeah. yeah. We had Jason Momoa, who became Aquaman, that we were going to wow. get, we were hoping. And we also had um, Adam Driver. Can you believe that? And Gee, Adam that's Dr a cast. <laughs> that is a cast. And they were all unknowns. They were relatively unknowns. Now, Adam Driver was about ready, I think, to do the Star Wars, you know, do, get in Star Wars. I think he got it right after we asked him. And yet he's he's in everything now. I mean, everywhere you look, it's an Adam Driver movie, you know. So that would have been it. But the producers were so narrow-sighted because they only saw stars. You have to have names. And I'm going, you guys don't understand these three names. And the casting director was an assistant casting person who came on, and she knew everyone. And she got me into every single place to find a cast. And we're going, this is so great. And they were going after Chris Evans you know, uh, you know, Captain America and everything, who still loves the script. But to wait for him, the whole movie goes away. And I've yeah. said this to many people. The biggest detriment to your film is if a star likes it because they'll wait for them. And then they'll have a new shiny rock and they'll go do something else. And that, your movie will never get made. So unless it has a huge director on it also, you know. And my biggest problem is I've write... I write well enough to get A-listers on it, and most of the time it means I'm out because if, if a director comes on board that's a bigger name than me, then I've lost the ability to do it. And I had three director contracts at three different studios, New Regency, Sony, and, uh, and Warner Brothers. I almost had one. I didn't have it. I had a first-look deal. And the regimes changed every single time before I ever got to make a film. So, you know, Constantine, I was, we'll talk about that later, but... But that one was a heartbreaker, that one. Well, speaking of Constantine, uh, might as well talk about that now because it's become more favorably looked upon uh, in the year since it was released. And as we touched on it earlier, both myself and Andy, we love this movie. But how did it actually end up in your lap in the first place? I had done a script, I think I told you, Rain in Spain, based on a true life thing that happened in... Spain in 1966, where a B-52 with four hydrogen bombs on it was uh, was loading fuel at the back of another plane, a 707 refueler, and they crashed into each other and fell down upon this little town called Palomares, which is, means place of dubs. 
Not one person was killed. It was on the day of their patron saint. The most amazing story you could ever. So I write the script, and it got me into every freaking door. Every door. Wendy Feinerman did Forrest Gump. Everybody. Because writing gets you in. And when that script came out, it was all about character. And Lauren Donner, I think was at uh, uh, Warner Brothers, you know, had read it and said, let's get this guy to polish up some of the character stuff. That's all I was supposed to do. So they give me this script. And I have to tell you, it was the it was a cut and paste, literally cut and paste. They cut pages and paste them together and put white out. The producers did this out of three other writers' work. It was the worst piece of shit. It really was. It, I, my son at the time now was 15, and he could have done a better job. I'm not kidding. He didn't even know how to write a screenplay, but he could have fixed this thing. It was so bad. It was like Schwarzenegger doing cracking up jokes every time something happened. They were in Chinatown, and I'm going, what is this? I don't want to work. This is crap. They give me the graphic novels that it's based on. The original writer started with two, two dangerous habits and original sins. And Dangerous Habits was John Constantine dying of cancer from smoking. And Original Sins was at the end, he has to meet this three-headed demon dragon thing, and uh, he kills himself. So Broadman, the original writer, whose script was probably okay, I just, just never got to read it. But by the time it got to me, it was just terrible. And I was told all I was supposed to do was fix the ending and give a little more character at the beginning. I'm going, that's it? This thing needs a lot of work. That's, this is not enough. So I was, it was my first writing assignment for a studio. And for me, it was a lot of money. And I can't remember, it was like 80, 90,000 bucks, which is a lot of money to write a screenplay, to rewrite it. It's all in polishing. So I sat down and I kept looking at this. And I, they gave me the graphic novels and I started reading them. Oh my God, these are so good. This is a real character. This is not what this script is at all, you know. And and I mean, John Constantine's so cool, you know. It's such a great, uh, just a great series and a great character. I threw everything out except for the original two ideas where it came from and started over. I was not supposed to do this, and I just wrote my own screenplay. I wrote the sister. She had a twin sister. I had water. He's sticking his feet in water and going through instead of candles and pentagrams. I did all these things I wasn't supposed to because they were in the graphic novels and I'm not supposed to change it. So I get done and I turn it in and boy, I thought my career was over uh, because uh, the executive calls my agent and said, this is not what we asked for. He's thrown out three million dollars or two million dollars of screenplays you know so and he just threw them out and he started over and i didn't get a word i didn't hear anything just like now i still haven't heard in 10 years on the second one and then miracles of all miracles uh lorenzo de bonaventura he was the head of warner brothers he was sitting there one day he said in his office i got to know him pretty well and he saw Constantine, but it had a different name on it because they keep seeing this thing for three years. keeps coming over his desk on a pile, and it has 12 names on it, you know. But I took them all off. I, I just put mine on there, you know. <laughs> and you know what I did do? I said based – I just said based on – the same two that the original writer did. I just started over, that's all. I didn't take anything from those. 
So I, arrogant asshole, I just did that. So he sees one name and he goes, huh. He took it home. He read it, came back the next day. He said, this is a movie. Now, it's not the movie that it was finally, but he said, this is the writer because he's captured the comic. He's captured that darkness and everything. And it was even darker. It was darker than the, la- the movie that came out. So I came in and I remember Lauren Donner. I met her for the first time and everything. And I wrote for four years on that with three different directors. And they all had one thing in common. They had all done a J-Lo video, music video. All of them. And I used to say, damn, I went the wrong direction. I should have done music videos. But when we got Keanu, he liked the writing. And he he wanted me to come down with his manager at the time and an executive from Warner. And I was never allowed to be alone with Keanu because I'm a director. And they don't want me as a director because Erwin Stoff had just hired Francis Lawrence. And I think he wanted him to do it and he was a music video director and, and I like Francis and I think he's done great work so I go down there and I meet Keanu every night for about an hour he comes back from the Matrix 3 I think he was doing and he can't eat anything because he has to keep slim to be in this suit but he smokes and I didn't know that and I went out one night and he was smoking nobody else came out that's the only time I was alone with him I said hey you ever do little movies anymore and he goes yeah man I love little movies like one million dollar movies and I'm like because I had he was a quiet man and I was really going to try to get it to him and then I go back in and we all go home and he decides to do the movie and now Francis uh, I go in there and I pitch myself uh, and who told me to do that Dick Donner Lauren Donner's husband he's seen my work he says you need to get be a director again you should tell Keanu you want to do it. Write him a letter. I said, what? Write Keanu a letter, send it to him without anyone knowing it. Yeah. He said, they'll kill me. And not if you get the job, you got to fight for the job. (laughs) I said, well, you're an A-lister. You get final cut. How can you? I don't, I'm nobody. So I write this letter. And then I go in and meet everybody at Warner's. It's eight or 10 people around this table. And I'm wearing a blue shirt, which shows sweat under the arms. I just remember that for some reason. And I pitch myself. I know this character. Because Keanu told me out there that night, he goes, I don't want a music video director. I don't want somebody who's just visual. I want someone that really knows the character. And that's because I want to bring this guy to life. So I came in and I pitched that way. And then at the end of it, I see all these Lauren Donners there, Akiba Goldsman's there, all of them. And then I did the big mistake. I said, by the way, I wrote Keanu a letter because I really believe I'm the right guy. But I didn't send it. And I slid it across the table. Just the fact that I wrote it. I could see Erwin Stoff wanting to kill me. Just kill me. And I slid it across the desk, and I said, but I didn't send it. And Lauren Donner's looking at me. I didn't say who told me to wrote it. It was her husband. (laughs) And so I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, you know, I'm dead. And everybody left the room, and then Kiva stayed behind and says, you did as good as anyone could ever do for about 58 minutes (laughs) out of an hour. He says, man, I said, but I didn't send it. He says, it doesn't matter. What it matters is, is you were thinking of sending it. I said, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter. Erwin Stoff's going to hire this guy, this music video director. He just signed him. And I think he's going to try to get him. So I'm really sorry. You did a great job. You really pitched yourself well. You're just not going to get it. And then I got fired. And, you know, oh. the, new, the new director 
supposedly was intimidated that I had already directed two pictures with Russell Crowe and Viggo Mortensen, and I'd be looking over his shoulder saying, this isn't how I would do it. I wouldn't be that way, and I didn't want to be on the set as a writer anyway. I had my own movies I wanted to do. So Kiva goes, I got bad news. You're fired. And he says, I'm taking over. Kiva, who did Batman and Robin and gets death threats to this day, said, I'm not putting my money. Yeah, I'm not putting my name on this because I don't want to die. Your name's going on it, you know, so don't worry about it. So he says, and Keanu is kind of weird. He wants some seasoned writer, producer on this, on the movie. So second day of shooting, I finally show up just to, Keanu sees me. And they're having problems. Keanu's not happy. The director's not happy. They're not getting along. And on a break, he comes over and goes, Frank, where are you? Why are you not on this movie? And I knew right then and there, it was all politics. You know, it was just, he never said that. He never asked for me not to be there. And that day I slipped, he was a quiet man, into his dressing room trailer outside. He never saw it. Erwin Stahl probably found it and threw it in the trash, you know, so mm -hmm. I never got to, to do that work with him. I'm not saying he'd been the best person, but man, having him on it would have really sold the movie, you know. I had my chances, and, and, you know, Constantine was one that I used to call it constant pain because every year <laughs> at Christmas, I would have to write another draft. I wrote 50 drafts. Some were numbered times of day because one day I did it, I did polishes twice in one day. And as it got closer to production, it was uh, originally it was Tar Sim who did The Cell. He was a funny guy, but in a really dangerous way. And they couldn't take this guy because one of his scenes was he had a he had Jesus on a surfboard on a surfboard with his eyes gouged out. And that was one of the scenes he wanted to shoot. And I go, where does it go? And he goes, I just want that scene. It was so cool. And so he had an art director with him who was really probably the, the real master because he never talked and he just lined the walls with all this beautiful artwork and then Tarsim would go ch pick certain things and I did like the cell I mean the cell was very yeah. visually weird but he walked off because he couldn't get six months prep and he goes well David Fincher gets six months prep why don't I know and so he quit and Nicolas Cage was on it then and he left and everybody sued each other and the movie ended up costing a lot more than it should have just because of that start and then stop and then start and stop and so yeah you're right about one thing when it first came out my hometown in St. Pete Clearwater Florida panned it you know and Frank Capello here from here wrote this piece of shit you know and all this and you know it was like it isn't bad I think it's really good I think Francis did a really no, good is. job yeah, on it. it is I but over the years it picked up As a matter of fact now there's some sort of thing where it says best adaptations of comic book movies and Constantine's on that list the top 10 and I go I didn't adapt it though you know they're in the scene where he he commits suicide and he goes to hell mm -hmm. that's how he can that's not in the comic he's just a magician he's a rock star magician and I kept saying to everybody but how did he get this power guys so one day I came in and I told Akiva I've got the idea I've written a three-page scene he goes I don't want anyone to see it we're too late in the production okay what do I do now I went over his head and <laughs> I went to the executive and I showed him and he goes, I love this. It's in the movie. And that's where he's in the bus and he turns around and the demon looks at him. You know, oh, all yeah. those, yeah. that whole sequence wouldn't be in the movie if I hadn't gone over someone's head. And 
that came, I hate telling long stories, and it's not that long, but my father had quintuple bypass surgery. Four of his arteries had to be. He didn't have a heart attack. They caught it soon. But on the operation, my sister and I, my mom were outside. He died. He essentially was gone. They couldn't get his heart to start again for like four or five minutes. And they finally got him resuscitated somehow, and he lived, of course. And then he used to tell me, Frank, I have some of the most horrible nightmares. I can't even describe to you what they are. They're heinous, revolting. And he wouldn't tell me what he's an old school guy. And I said, Dad, do you want me to... Like, I'll get you a therapist. He was visiting from Florida for three weeks. You go in and talk to him. Maybe he can help you on this. Okay, okay, okay. He never did it. And I used to say, my dad died, and he, used, he was in the war. He was in the Korean War and World War II, a little bit of World War II, a Korean War. He will never say if he killed anyone. On his deathbed, I think he told my sister in Florida that he had. And he was Catholic. And so for him, to kill another human means you go to hell. That's, that's how you go. You just, that's where you go. So he knew where he was going. And he was so afraid of death, he would check, check himself in the hospital. Tell my mom says, you're going to die. You're going to die. If you're going to live, live. But, you know, so he died. She died before he did, which is really funny. Not funny, but ironic. But my, that's where I came up with the idea. And I said, here's what happened to Constantine. He, he committed suicide and he died for four minutes. But four minutes in hell is like a lifetime and he brought back this ability to see them here and now he's putting him there and the line that's in there goes how would you like to go to a prison that you put all the inmates in you know because mm. he had been sending yeah. back the demons and that came right out of my dad it came right out of that story and you know when people say oh that's great I said, it's not in the comic and so the the people that that like the keanu reeves version wishes he would do a sequel the people that thought he was not right for it, probably wishes they never do. And I think Legendary, I think, does it. I think, yeah. think they want Keanu, and that's why he'll never get to do another one. Plus, lately, he's been rebooting things all with long hair. You know, it's like <laughs> Matrix, long hair. I think he's got a thing in his contract. I am not cutting my hair, you know. <laughs> or shaving my beard. <laughs> or shaving my beard. And, and, I, and I have the same length of hair right now. I just let it grow this last year and a half. Said I'm not stopping until I finish the womb. You said that you couldn't get Keanu in to be he was a quiet man. Um, so how did Christian Slater end up getting involved with this? Well, I had met him when he was he had just done uh, Broken Arrow and I think uh, The Flood, and he was up to $5 million. And his mother, Mary Jo Slater, is a big casting director at the time. She was really big. So we gave the script to him. He actually came to my house, my first wife, and he brought in a cigar. And I remember this to this day. She just grabbed it out of his mouth and threw it outside. One thing I still love about her. Uh, <laughs> she goes, not in my house. And, but then years later, he had hit bottom. And, and Mary Jo still knew me as a writer. And she knew of Quiet Man. She had read it. And she said, you're going to do this movie because you, you're doing you bold movies. Yeah. And, you know, they have a Rotten Tomato score of like 7%, you know, so they're terrible. But he was doing it because he was in a very high-maintenance marriage. <laughs> yeah, his wife was high-maintenance. But uh, so he would give her everything. And he just made movies and made movies. didn't matter what they were. And so Christian was one that... I wanted originally, 
and I happened to be in England, and he was doing Glass Menagerie or something, a play or something like that, and I was there with a girl. So I said, hey, I know where the playhouse is, and we went and saw Stonehenge that day, and so driving back, I said, let's just crash the theater. And he knows me, he knows my mom, and so I came there, and I'm telling you this, this is so funny how men are, so predictable. <laughs> The girl I had was a beautiful girl, you know, so she was with me and he couldn't take his eyes off her. And he was sweating because he just finished the, 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 the play and everything. And he's going, hey, man, I really want to do the film. And I said, we were, I really want you to do the film and all. So I go home and then it's not working out. It's supposedly then Tim Allen wanted to do it. And he was big at the time. And why I turned down Tim Allen is because he was crazy. And when I met him, he was like, <laughs> I thought he was psychopathic, honestly. Like, I have everything. I have the top comedy album, the top movie, the top series. And my mother still likes my brother more. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, okay. And tell me everything about your father. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, a I'm space the... ranger, mom. <laughs> <laughs> but, but. Uh, and Tim and Alan, I, I look a little alike. And back then he even said, yeah, you do look a little like me. And then I go outside and he's got the same damn car. You know, I had a, I had a leased BMW Black 7 and he had the same thing. And I go, I don't know if I'm you or me. I picked Christian. <laughs> and, you know, he wasn't big, but man, was he pro on that movie. He knew his lines inside. I was a quick 20, 20 day shoot. And the way he really got it, though, is I had a party. And back when I was social, I had a little two-bedroom apartment in Santa Monica right near the water, which if you get divorced, you have to live near the water. <laughs> Just the way it is. Every, every guy there is divorced. Yeah, I got divorced. I live near the water. <laughs> that sounds like a, anyway, curb your enthusiasm episode. But uh, so, so, yeah, he crashed this party at 100 people in my apartment at a two-bedroom apartment, which is crazy, but it had a throughway so he could go outside and everything. I go, what's Christian Slater doing here? And he says, hey, man, my mom says you still want me in this movie and all, and that was, that was it. He crashed the party, and I thought, wow, when somebody actually goes and tries to get a role again, it was just awesome, you know. And that movie, even on the DVD commentary, I started going, this isn't the story about a movie that was hell to make, that we all suffered and that we bled our art. Uh uh. Everything fell in my lap. Everything fell in my lap. It was the kismet of all, it was the zen of motorcycle repair. It was everything. I just said, I'm going to go make this movie. I've waited long enough for someone else to make it. One, one company said, we'll get Jake Gyllenhaal in it. We'll give you $4 million. I go, are you going to do it next week? He says, why? He says, I'm going to start making the movie next week. Yeah, right. And then I made the movie and I did it with my money and my friend. And we spent like 550 grand on the movie. And we had William Macy in it. Uh, we had Alicia Cuthbert in it. And the whole, whole cast cost me only like $30,000 because they loved the script. And he had just come off Bobby, the, the Bobby Kennedy story and William Macy was on it. So he brought him in and that was really cool. So that movie was just, I mean, it's, I need an assistant. Oh, we have an intern. She's really good. She became my assistant for like five years. She's amazing. What do I do? She said, I don't know. I've never had an assistant. Why don't you paint the office? 
<laughs> I'm not kidding. There, there's four productions going on. You know how if you go into a production facility, all the all the drop ceilings all are rearranged because they've dropped cables through it, mm. and there's stains everywhere, coffee. No one gives a shit because they're not going to stay in this building very long, right? But I'm sitting there. I've been traveling the world. I've been going to all over these places. And so I go, uh, they gave us a little corner office for free and this little thing. Okay, after you paint the office, why don't you make some windows frames? We don't have any windows. I know. So she went home, figured it out, made these wooden window frames, painted in white. And then I put Monte Carlo, big poster behind it. I put Paris. I put all this. It was like a travel agency, right? And so everybody starts saying, Joel would come back there and goes, what are you guys doing back here? Well, then I have wine day. On Fridays, I would buy like six bottles of wine and everybody from all the other productions says, oh, we're having wine on Friday night. So they come over for wine. They start cleaning their office. I'm not kidding you. And it was like, Joel goes, you have some weird thing going on here and I don't know what it is. Well, this is the time when I almost got married. This is a quick story. I almost got married. Ask a girl to marry me. I hadn't seen her in a while and I'm, I'm a total wuss and and so she says i can't say yes or no give me a week <laughs> i'm going that's not how it goes in the movies so i'm sitting here doing casting and i have a camera that's mounted on the ceiling and i get this call on friday it's her i haven't heard from her four days i said do i pick this up i got a girl sitting in the chair trying out for the part uh hi she goes frank i'm really sorry but i can't no i go okay thank you she goes, where are you at? I says, I'm casting this movie. You're in casting right now? I go, well, why didn't you say so? Because I was really wanting to hear yes. <laughs> you know? So, so, I, so I, I get no. And you know what I did? I walked over to a bottle of wine, took a cork. And this is Don Phillips is the casting director who's a recovering alcoholic. He cannot have a drop. So I open up the bottle of wine, pull the cork. I pour myself a glass, and I offer the girl, I said, would you like one? <laughs> she goes, okay. She didn't get the part, but she drank wine. So I give her a thing. And then I said, Don, he goes, Frank, because he's – and so he runs out of the room, gets Joel, pulls me out by my ear. What are you doing? You can't do this. I said, what do you mean? It's my movie. I can do anything I want. He goes, what happened? And I tell him the story, and he goes, you know what? I really respect her now because I wouldn't marry you either. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it was like – and there's a longer story that goes on that she eventually says yes, and then I didn't want to get married. And this is where people say, where do you get ideas to write? I says, you have to live your life. And when I was married and I had a kid, I had a white picket fence. I really just did what everybody else did. I wrote from watching movies. I didn't have a life. Everything had gone okay. I had a fun childhood and everything. But once I got divorced, I had a life. I did everything I ever wanted to do. I wrote in Paris. I wrote in places that I've always wanted to. I sat in a restaurant and Don King comes in in Paris. I want his table. There's no tables. He doesn't have anything on it. And the maitre d' walks up and I go, do I have to move? And he goes, no, you are a writer. I'll never forget that. I, you are a writer. Can you imagine that in Paris? If you're an artist, you're somebody. But Don King, he's just this loud American boxing promoter, you know, and he had to wait. And I didn't leave. I was writing every day there, you know. So that's my life. And it's very interesting if you just live it, just go through it. And if you're a writer, every time something like this happens to you, all you can do is think about, holy shit, that'd make a great scene. 
<laughs> even if it's your <laughs> life, true. even if it's your life, you, you know, my ex-wife used to say, you live your life inside of a movie. I said, but it keeps me sane. You know, it really <laughs> did. I never broke down. I never needed therapy. You know, at least, at least I don't think so. But I just think these stories are important. I think it's important that if a writer wants to be a writer, if you want to be a filmmaker, get a little bit of life. It's true. Well, getting back to uh, he was a quiet man. I understand that Christian Slater had uh, a really good reaction to seeing the movie for the first time. It depends on which first time. The first time in my apartment, he was sitting yes. on pins and needles. It didn't have the ending it eventually had. Uh, he was there. Alicia Cuthbert was there. Her mom was there. And I didn't have an ending. I have a real problem with endings. So we all argued about what the ending would be. But he loved the film. But it was in New York. We were the last film of the Gen Arts Film Festival. And they paid for us to have a real premiere. They had paparazzi out front, everything. And it was great. There was news organizations there doing stories that are still online now. They had never seen the ending they were about to see. <laughs> so in the original movie, which is the, the version that's out now, I call it He Was a Quiet Man 2020. I found footage. I put six more minutes into it, and I recut it with a better ending, I thought, because the ending that was in it was so stark that when I would show it to somebody, I wouldn't want to be there. They'd hate me. And then the next morning, they'd call up and say, you know what? That's the only ending you could have. That's the right ending. It's just not satisfying emotionally. So for years, I put up with that. So I finally did a recut of it, and I put a different ending. I found some more footage of it. And then they go, I like the first ending more. And that's really telling when you think about it something that caused people to hate the movie because it made them feel terrible rather than one that made them feel better it's the one they remembered that made them feel terrible is the one they remember and it's what i'm going through right now in the womb right now by the way just trying to figure out should i kill him or should i make it happy i don't know you know but uh he really liked the film and in new york like I say, uh, we had a screening in Austin, Texas. We were in South Southwest. He flew in and signed autographs and all that. But that was the ending that was the old ending. And L.A. Times writer Kenneth Turan wrote that I wrote myself into a corner and then I painted a door to get out, meaning it didn't work. So I changed the ending. And I asked him even on the plane flying back because I saw him. I said, could you please, that was a work in progress, redo the, redo the review once I get this new ending. And he goes, no, I can only do it once. So, you know, you live and die by a review, but uh, what people remember. I have to say that, that you know, I was going to send you this film, Andrew, and it was the long yeah. version. And you probably wouldn't have understood it unless you saw it twice. And I say, well, look at Interstellar. Do you really know what happened the first time? I didn't. Uh, memento. I still can't tell you what happened other than it was backwards. But I, I, it wasn't an emotional movie for me. But which one do you remember? Do you remember the one that challenges you to say, wait a minute, that would mean this. And this would mean that. Oh, and then they'll call me and I'll say, well, what do you think? No, tell me really. What was it supposed to mean? I say, you tell me. And that's what 2001 was. You know, it was a movie that everybody interpreted differently. Some people thought it was boring as hell. Other people thought it was a revelation. You know, it was a drug trip for some. And So Quiet Man was one of these that 
it was dealing with a subject matter that's really serious, but I treated it in a farcical way with talking goldfish. And people said, well, why did you do it that way? Why didn't you do it like the Joker now? Like they did just did the Joker. But that was a long time ago. And I said, because it's his mind. The movie's in his mind. Everybody's treating him like shit because that's how they see him. At the very end of the movie in the first original one, there are two people standing there, very real. Yeah, he pretty much kept himself. Yeah, he was a quiet man. They were real. They weren't playing anything. And it was, we got invited on the Dr. Phil show, which, uh, you know, most of the people hate him and they wouldn't go on. All the actors wouldn't go on because they wanted to talk about people going postal, that this was a serious film, but treated it in a different way. And nobody would go on. And so we couldn't get that kind of publicity. And we never did get the publicity for it because Christian went straight over to do One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, playing Jack Nicholson again in England. So he couldn't come back for interviews or anything. So, you know, I do these movies and uh, what happens is because usually I do more than I'm supposed to for the money, that people are embarrassed sometimes to promote it, even if it's a good movie. It's like... Uh, I tried to get a friend of mine who's a decent actress, he's been in things, to be in the womb as a, as a colonel. And he says, Frank, uh, my career's starting back up again. I want to do real movies. And I'm standing there <laughs> thinking, what am I doing? This is it's a real movie. It's a good movie. It's a good real movie. It, it's not what you're going to end up doing, which he did. And it was crap, but he got paid. And he said, I'm used to the dressing room trailers. I'm used to the dress, you know, when you go and you get your hair and there's all the candy on food service and all this. It was all of the making of the movie that he enjoyed. And I don't blame him. I mean, it's kind of mm. cool. But in the end, he, the movies aren't good, but they don't care, you know. And that's why I'm really, really particular on this particular film I just finished to get it right matter of fact actors are all calling me because IMBD just put on two days ago that it released what they're all calling me it released where did it release and I have to call them again second time they've done this I go would you quit doing this you keep putting that my movies released we're in post we've been in post for a f***ing year and a half <laughs> so, and they keep putting it out there as if it's done you know well, in talking about the, the two movies that you've uh, done now, Steel Wool and uh, The Womb, I mean, these are projects that, you know, you, you've really took a, a kind of back step on and reined in a lot of control yourself. That's obviously more rewarding for you. And you can kind of hear it in your voice, you know, especially. Uh, and the stories that you've kind of told, I mean, all of the projects that you've done have been really, really creative, you know, and... You've never made a really bad movie. Oh, well, Suburban Commando to me is not very good. <laughs> I didn't make that hey, movie. We all started somewhere. You should have seen the first thing I shot. But, <laughs> but your name's not a director on it, so you're okay. But there's a really good research because you're the director who just goes out there and does it. You know, whether the money is there or not, you will take that step out there to actually get it done. And I think that's why we're all looking forward to seeing The Womb. Me especially, uh, since you first mentioned about it to me. So when do you reckon this is going to be ready? Well, it was supposed to be ready like four months ago. And the funny thing is, is I'm back to almost the ending I had 
eight months ago. But what happens is I kind of painted myself into another corner because when you do start as quickly as I start, you have an outline. You have kind of a basic idea of this story and then you write as you go. And I write and I, I shoot pretty much linearly. On Steel Wool, that was an accident. It was never supposed to be a movie. I think I even have a little YouTube video on it where I'm talking about that basically I was testing a camera that I wanted to use for location scouting on a deaf actress. And she had to act against someone, so I stood in for it. My friends saw it, and they said, that's, that's really good. You're actually not bad either. I said, no, no, no. But then they said, what happens next? And then I asked myself what happens next, and I start doing it. And I, st- I keep going, and a year and like two months later, I have a film. Now, it's not a film that I would have ever sat down and wrote. I wouldn't have written that film. But it's a film. And my feeling was, well, it's the only film I'll ever be in. And I always look at it saying I can leave something behind for my great-great-great-great-grandchildren. They say, this is my grand-great-great-great-grandfather. <laughs> so that's who he is. But it went off and it won some awards. I mean, we won, not big festivals, but the one in Jersey City, Golden Door Festival, which they're trying to get me to come now in May, uh, it's it's pretty big. And it, it, it's a great arena and everything. And we won Best Picture that year, which is impossible. And, and I walking up the stairs to accept this trophy and all, this amazing trophy they had, or whatever you call them, uh, I kept saying to Bill Servino, the Servino family runs it. That's Mia Servino, used to mm-hmm. be married to Tarantino and all. Yeah. They're the ones that run this whole thing. And I said to Bill, you guys made a huge mistake. He says, no, we didn't. And I think the reason why I won that is because it was one guy. It was one guy making an entire film, and this was no little film. This was 33 separate locations, and I had so many animals. I had 12 wild cats and dogs and a turtle and a frog, and and Cammie and I just freaking almost made it up as we went, and I'm not kidding you, but I used every freaking thing. I'd say, hey, there's a guy across the street. His house looks haunted. Let's make friends with him, and he feeds the cats. Now we got cats. And we did that through the whole thing. Oh, look, they're building something over here. Let's go ask if we can use that. And I cheated like crazy. I mean, we're in Grand Central Station almost for L.A., you know, we're, and we have hundreds of people, and she's running through the crowd, and I'm filming it with a long lens. We got almost thrown out twice, but then we said we were YouTubers, and we were doing a travelogue, and they gave us a permit. <laughs> <laughs> and then the police, even the police tried to help us. Everything in this movie, it, it seems like when you're doing what you love to do, things happen for you. But yeah. when you have to force it, when you really have to say, I'm. Uh, my favorite book sits on the toilet called The Tao of Pooh, uh, the Winnie the Pooh book, the little thin thing. And it's all a Buddhist philosophy of don't try to fight up the river. Let the river take you, and you'll eventually get where you want. And when I was a writer and I wanted to direct, I finally just said, they don't want me to direct. I'm going to be the best damn writer I can be. And that took me to having three contracts with three different studios. But all those regimes changed. Paramount, the guy left, you know, and then they don't do the films they were going to do, you know. So anyway, I love doing these little movies. Now, The Womb, I didn't want to be in it, obviously. And it came about because... Cammie had to move from L.A. uh, because she works for the Bureau of Land Management. She has a federal job. So she was 
moving and I was trying to help her move, but I didn't know she didn't have a good credit score at the time. <laughs> and so I had to co-sign and, you know, cause we're, we're like kind of girlfriend, boyfriend a bit, but we're not really that relationship yet, you know? And I said, okay, I'll help. And I go up there. And so we're looking at houses and her credit score is so low and we can't find anything. And she has to move immediately. And we see this house it's got this dark alley next to it, and behind it are these high-tension lines where, you know, you'll get radiation and die. My dick will fall off probably someday because of living there two years, you know. And so we basically got the house to do a movie. She didn't know that. <laughs> but I did. Well, one of the best things about that is you can write it off against tax then, can't you? Yeah, the whole thing is written off, you know, and and everything and that was another movie called antigen believe this it was before the pandemic in november of that the year before i said okay i got a, a, an idea of a movie we could shoot here called antigen and what's an antigen it's like a virus it's like something in you but it's in your memories and all and so we were going to shoot that and then a real virus hit and then everything shut down nobody could do it so i said okay you're going to be wally have you guys ever seen the pixar movie yeah, wally yeah Okay, you're going to be Wally. And she goes, what's Wally? So I show her the film. It's a little robot. And every day it does this. It's the last person on the planet or thing on the planet. And every day it cleans up by moving all the garbage and compacting it and stacking it. And so it makes it pretty. And then Ava comes, Eva comes, and it's, she's pretty, but she's dangerous. So I said, you're Wally. And she goes, okay. I said, what do I do? I said, you pick up dead bodies that are dying all around your house and you bury them in the backyard. You bury them in the field behind there with the high tension lines, but you're in this pandemic suit. I don't want to tell you too much, but she makes her own suit. And when she comes in, she's got goggles on. She's got everything. She's got every place. And the washing room in this house had a door to the garage and then a door to the house. So it was like an airlock. So I covered the entire house from ceiling to floor everywhere with, with this frosty plastic, that diffused plastic. So the whole house is a fortress. And I use blue masking tape you use, you know, you get at Home Depot and all. And that's why I was working so much because I every single room, every hallway, everything. And there were doorways that go from one to another, like plastic dividers. Because she's trying to keep out whatever's out there. But it's not the movie you think and that's what's fun about it you know and there's enough things in it you know people wearing masks and all that you know that you might think it is but it isn't but I got to be a DP for the first time I used to light all my own stuff back in my company's days miniatures and everything so I was the guy lighting it and I was the guy designing it and I was the camera operator and I wasn't in it and so I really focused on the cinematography and and 22 minutes go by before the first line of dialogue and then there's one sequence near the end eight minutes long no dialogue all told in visuals all told with what she's doing and you're going oh oh it's the greatest sort of storytelling is there's no dialogue it's just visual and you're and, and you know breaking bad used to do that a lot and so did better mm. call Saul the two shows where there would be a 10 minute sequence where there's no and you're wondering why is he throwing shoes over a wire what's he doing over there you know why is he got a gun out and, and then you figure it all out and you go oh so I was really happy I'm very proud of this movie and I've had like three endings and 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 Andrew I'd have to ask 
I'd ask another director to watch something and say, am I nuts or does the long version, even though you don't understand it, is it actually better? And that's where I'm at right now. And I've cut it down to 93 minutes. It was only 102 minutes, but I got it down to 93 after Thanksgiving, a screening of like nine people. And everybody stared at me like at the end, like the silence. (laughs) And I was told the next day by one of the guys there I know, uh, he said, you shouldn't have asked him that night. They were still processing. Should And the next morning at breakfast, because we were staying at this family's house, uh, everybody was talking about the movie. Even though they didn't get it, they kept trying to figure it out. And there's something about if you're going to make little movies on your own, which do you want to do? The happy ending that gets you the most views or likes or whatever it is that you want, maybe more money, or the one that people remember, the one they put on their shelf and they go, if you watch this movie, you're going to have to watch it twice. (laughs) Actually, it's not a good marketing ploy at all. But, yeah, it was so powerful of an ending. And even the composer, I haven't told him yet that I cut that ending because he, he made the music like, and it just built at the end. And each time I went to black and came back, went to black, came back, it gave you more of what happened in the overall story. You did not know what the movie was until the last frame. And I loved it. But no one got it. (laughs) So what do you do, you know? And this is the frustration that Lauren Donner told me that directors go through. So I have friends now that go, listen, I'll even invest in your next movie, but you have to have a whole script written. And I'm just, I got gun shy uh, after Constantine II 11 years ago, 10 years ago, that I just did, I was so afraid to write anymore because I can't get, made what I want because it costs too much. So I spend my own money. I don't have to spend a lot. I paid everybody on the movie. I didn't have a crew. I had a makeup artist for four days. She got, and I I spent over a year. You know, we're not shooting every day. You know, I'm all, I'm doing other things. And then I start working on something. I go, Cammie, I need you against the green screen. (laughs) Why? Because the, the, I've changed the line, you know, and I really learned to do green screen in this movie, and I'm doing it with a little 8-bit Sony camera that's used for still photography almost, and it's, it's gorgeous. And I wouldn't put anything up there that didn't work, but my whole house was covered in green screen. She's running through hallways, and then in the movie, oh my God, the first time I did it, she's in statues have come through the wall. She's in the shittiest place you've ever seen. And she's running through these vermiculites floating in the air. And I'm, she looked at it and I looked at it and I go, this is our hallway. <laughs> it's, it's, it's real. You guys ever heard of a guy named Eon Hubbard? Ian Hubbard? Hubert? No. no. He's a blender artist. He's used the same software I did. But he is amazing. He does everything himself, but he's a detail-oriented. He, he develops worlds, and he just came out with his short he worked on for four years, and it's 22 minutes, and he did everything in it, and his girlfriend's in it, uh, a couple other people, and he inspired me when I watched that. I said, I want him to do the, the other world in this movie, but he would never answer me because he's doing his own thing, and so I ended up having to learn and do it myself, and so uh, I am very excited about working with a crew, though, believe me. And this year, I was hoping to do um, a little fable movie, like a little wine movie. Uh, that's a cross between Under the Tuscan Sun and Chocolat. And I wanted a movie that people would watch every year. 
you know, something like It's a Wonderful Life. And I don't know if I can do it, honestly. I honestly don't know if I have it in me to do something like that, so I'm going to try. Well, we wish you the best of luck with it, and also the best of luck with Womb, because everything that you've been telling us about it just sounds like it's it's going to completely mess with your head. Um, so we look forward to that one coming up. But for right now, we're going to have to move on, and we have a very particular question when we ask you to nominate five. Now's the time to nominate five. It's quick round time. You have the budget to make a song? That's amazing. <laughs> budget? <laughs> we can't even shift it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Okay, Steve, quickly, let's nominate five. Okay, Uh, nominate five is the part of the show where we invite our guests to tell us five of their favourites, whatevers. It's all dependent on the guest, and this time around, we are going to be asking Frank A. Capello to nominate his five favourite special effects. Are you talking shots? It, special effects shots, sequences, just your favourite moments in cinema that have made you go, wow. And it's a quick fire round, so you've got an uh, elevator right, pitch so, of 30 seconds each one. Close Encounters of the Third Kind when the mothership comes up behind Devil's Tower. Cracking. Perfect. It's one of my favourites. Uh, Jason and the Argonauts, when I was younger, I was at a drive-in theatre or something and saw Harryhausen's puppets, you know, and there was that whole sequence fighting this, the skeletons and everything. And nowadays you look at it, it's crazy. But back then it was like, oh, my God, this is just amazing. Okay, that's another one. <laughs> uh, the trench sequence in Star Wars, when they dive down in the trench, we had never seen anything like that. You know, it was like, wow, the point of view of a ship going down with such freedom and all. And, mm. and another one was, it had to be from 2001. There's so many. And it's not really a special effect. It's the guy going up the wall and running down the other side. You know, and the way they yeah. turned yeah. turned that whole thing was just freaking amazing. And the Stargate sequence at the end of it, too, which most people would go back to the movie and get high just to watch, you know, when they're going into the whatever that called, uh, the the Stargate, you know, where the lights is dead, Douglas Trump yeah. and slit skin and all. Okay, I think it's three or four. Uh, yeah, you've got, that, that was four. You've got one more. Let's make it a good one. God, I, yeah, yeah. I, this is a tough one. Uh, the clock oh. is ticking. Ding, ding, <laughs> ding, ding. Blade Runner. The shot oh, of yes. the spinner going down to the top of the building on the, tur- yeah. uh, the, 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 the police station. One of the best, too. Anyway, so that's my, my nomination. <laughs> uh, see, there is someone else out there who likes 2001, Steve. Seeing as though you committed blasphemy the other week of calling it one of the worst things you'd ever seen. I, <laughs> Who no, said that? I never said it was one of the worst things I'd ever seen. You said it was one of the most boring. Maybe. <laughs> He'd never seen it until the other week when it got pulled out of What's in the Box and he had to go and watch it and come on the next show and talk about it, which is what we do all the time. And What's in the uh, box? It was blasphemy. Well, I thought, we're getting cancelled because of the... He's basically slandered the Hollywood Bible that is 2001. <laughs> Well, it's not that I thought it was this, you know, I, I wasn't of the 
the ilk of said, oh, the greatest film ever. It's just inspired so many people. Yes. It inspired George Lucas. It inspired every single person that made sci-fi films at the time. Matter of fact, they were all looking like that back then. Even Silent Running looked a little like it. I you said know, that uh, when I reviewed it. You did? Really? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and, and I like Silent Running. Douglas Trumbull did that for like three million bucks. You know, he, all of that it was a lot for that money. And 2001 took four years and it was not and the moon landing was not directed by Kubert. I can tell you that right now because uh, I've been on the moon and I know. <laughs> well, Frank, uh, it has been absolutely fantastic having you here. Uh, so many oh, great, great stories there that are going to get out and hopefully not going to get your head hunted. <laughs> yeah, the Ivanka Trump one might. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll, we'll replace that name with somebody else. It's just uh, Donald it. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know, but this is what he was. Now, uh, hey, it's been great. Really, it's fun talking about this stuff. And uh, well, stick around, Frank. We're not done yet. Right till the end. Okay. You know, I was just thinking when he was talking about all of those Warner executives. You know, Bill Daly was in that room. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was the senior VP, so he must have been in that room. So we're going to have oh, to ask him when he's on next. But um, no, uh, we're really looking forward to seeing the, the womb. I'm looking forward to seeing it. So uh, I hope I do get to see it before it goes on release, which would be great because we'll never get it in our country for probably about two years. <laughs> oh, no, no, because most movies now go on Netflix. You know that. So everybody gets it at the same yeah. time now. There is no movie theaters anymore. Have you been to the theater lately? I have. It's all empty, except for Spider-Man. I hear that was yeah. really full. <laughs> well, really we packed. T- yeah, that was sold out. Steve went to see Ghostbusters Afterlife, didn't you, Steve? Did you see it? Maybe. <laughs> That's still a sore <laughs> point with you, isn't it, Andy? It's a very sore point with me. I turned it down twice so we could go and watch it together, and then you went and seen it with a friend. You absolute freaking... So you haven't it. seen it yet? Yes, I have seen we it have. now, yes. Yeah. Did yeah. you like it? I did. I thought it. I thought it was okay. I just didn't like the the Ghostbusters holiday special style entry that's, that the original cast that made. That was the, the part that ruined it for me. I was yeah. loving it up until then, and I I kept saying, "Are they going to end? It? Oh no! Oh no! No, not oh! How'd they get their backpacks on when they were down in the basement? Oh, going on and on, <laughs> yeah. and and then I see a, a YouTube interview it says why ghostbusters afterlife had the best ending ever and i'm going i can't even watch that how could you say that <laughs> you know <it's, laughs> i would love to do a constantine movie and, and i'll tell you right now my agent's trying to talk to lorenzo and say lorenzo you saw the thing with colbert you know is there any way and he goes well we didn't like frank's script and I said, wow, first time I've heard anybody say this. Why didn't they like it? It was too dark and controversial. And I go, and? That's what, what was the need? problem. <laughs> what was the problem? Did you, see the, did you see the original one? For God's sake. No. The guy slits his wrist at the end of it. I have Jesus Christ in a jail cell looking like Frank Pizzetto. <laughs> Muscles, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I mean, and I have Constantine Sand. What is it? you're right out of central casting? He goes, Isabel says hello, so he knows it's him. He says, you know, we we hear all our lives that Jesus will come back, be you know, the thousand years, the rapture, and all this, blah blah blah. And I had these words. This is what we got me the job. He says, what about all those that refuse to suck Christian? <laughs> oh, <laughs> and he goes, well, 
Christianity's been the loudest voice in the room for a long time, and I listen to my children. But no, no, it, it's you got to write. The, the one thing I would say, and I'll end this by saying, I know three or four times in my life that I took a huge risk and could have lost everything. One was writing what I wanted to on Constantine. One was, there was a lot of, three major ones. And all I'm saying is, if you don't do that, and you don't break through someday, you're going to have to ask yourself, did I go far enough? And you really have to do it. You just, and you talk about a guy that's just doing it. I'm yelling at all my filmmaker friends, just start. This is, this is the main reason I'm coming to LA. Yeah. It's to finally get this thing cast and underway, hopefully. So, oh, fingers crossed. Well, if you're going to be having a movie in a can, oh, we need to ask what's in the box. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? More music. It is, yeah. Our budget has just gone way over. <laughs> so, Steve, what's in the box? Uh, what's in the box is the part of the show where Andy tries to educate me on movies because I'm a Philistine who apparently doesn't like stuff by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, he is going to pull out the name of a film from a box which he certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. And if I have seen it, then we're going to keep pulling out names of films until we find one that I haven't seen. And then I go away and I watch it the day before we record our next episode and then review it. Oh, wow. It's easy. Strange, simple. Yeah. Uh, so I've pulled a couple out here just in case. And the first one is, oh, look at this. You, you've got a kid's movie. You've got 1995's Babe. Do you know what? I haven't Babe. actually seen Babe. You haven't seen Babe the Pig? Well, there you go. I've First eaten Babe the, the Pig, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> it's sinister well, as hell, man. That's a great but movie. It is. It's a brilliant movie. And uh, you actually enjoy that. So you're going to go and wait and watch Babe before the next episode. Yep. And we will hear what your first viewing experience is. The Everyman Review. That Steve gives. So, some of the most uh, recommended movies on the planet that people love. Not Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Not Steve. He doesn't like movies about vaginas with teeth or. <laughs> Nobody liked movies about vaginas oh, with teeth. Chatterbox. <laughs> that that would have been a, a good movie. name for it. There was a movie. I swear it was out of previews. I saw it and it was, I swear, this has to be a joke. And it was uh, at a theater. And it was a guy going, you know, he was talking to his penis the whole time. And then I'm going, this has to be a joke. And it was a real movie. Wow. So, sounds like that guy who was sat watching Venom with us, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for this week. Uh, we want to say thank you very much for Frank uh, to, for coming along and sharing some stories with us. And uh, hopefully we're going to get you back again in the future to carry on talking some more stories, promote some more movies, and just come and have some fun, really. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you for okay. being here. Uh, so for right now, I guess that's uh, goodbye from me. And I've already left. Tatty bye. <laughs>